The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the Season 8 Christmas Special of the MJ Cast. I'm your host for today, Elise Capron, and I'm so honored to be joined by our entire MJ Cast team, plus a very special guest who I'll introduce in a moment. First, let me say how exciting it is to have everyone here. Our Christmas special is an annual tradition where we bring our entire team together to discuss Michael Jackson news and have some fun fan chat, but also to reflect on the year that was, on all the great moments of this past season of the show. I think we can all say that it's been an incredible year and a pretty wild ride. And speaking of our podcast team, I'm thrilled to be joined by my colleagues who are based all around the world, and I have to say... Getting everyone onto one time that works for everybody to record with all our time zones is quite a feat in itself. First, the wonderful founder of our show and our primary host, Jamin Bull, signing in from Studio Brisbane. Hey, Jamin, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Elise? Good, good. And then we have our incredible teammate, investigative journalist, Charles Thompson, who is based in the UK. Charlie, you've become so important to the podcast, and you've done phenomenal work co-hosting and supporting us on some of our most important interviews going all the way back to 2015. Hi, Charlie. I think that's quite an intro. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here, as always. (laughs) You know we love you. You're also Father Charles Miss, so we're especially glad to have you here. Um, And of course, we also have our other Charlie, Charlie Carter, who's signing in from Sydney, also in Australia, of course. Carter has truly saved us more than once with his support as our audio producer and editor and has also become a fantastic co-host in his own right on many episodes as well. Carter, we're so grateful to you. And how are you doing over there, Carter? Not too bad, thank you. And uh, that's a hell of a wrap for myself as well. So you really do love all the Charlies. (laughs) <laughs> I do love all the Charlies and all the Jamins too. I only know one Jamin, but he's extra special. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, I'm honored to introduce our guest for today, who has become a regular on our Christmas extravaganza episodes, having joined us for the last couple of years, Taj Jackson. Taj, it means the world to us that you take the time to join us each year, especially knowing how busy the holidays can be. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We could not be more excited ourselves. So we're thrilled to jump into some news from the world of Michael Jackson. But first, I want to briefly thank everyone who listened to the show this past year, who supported us and sent us ideas, news tips, and more. And thank you as well to all of our special guests whose stories make this podcast what it is and which help add to the King of Pop's legacy. We love this podcast project, and we are all so honored to get to be a part of it and could not do it without your support. With that in mind, just a reminder to subscribe on any podcast app and to rate us wherever you can as that helps new listeners find us. Plus, of course, you can engage with us online under the name The MJ Cast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at themjcast.com. We love hearing from you. Now let's get on with the show. We've got a lot of great news topics to discuss. 
So first of all, tell me how you guys are doing and how things are going leading up to Christmas. It's next weekend. Or is everybody freaking out trying to get presents and wrap things up? I haven't even started yet. I haven't even started Christmas shopping. And Carter. as we record this, it's the 18th. I know my wife is very disappointed in me and quite rightly so. Have you been a little busy with something, have you, Carter? Uh, just a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. L- lots of editing, lots of work, um, doing crazy overtime hours at work. And yeah, just looking forward to recording this one, to be honest. It's always a special listen to the Christmas episode. So to be, be on it is a special honor. Absolutely. Yeah, and I do have to say we've had a lot on our plate. Um, you guys, I mean, I've been kind of slacking, but Char- the Charlies and Jamin have been recording like fiends and editing, and it's been completely nuts lately. So, you know, we also thank all of our listeners, too, for their patience as we've gotten out some of our really big episodes towards the end of the season. And thank you to you guys for all your hard work you've been putting in. It's an absolute pleasure. It just It's what we do. And Charlie, is it snowing over there in the UK? It's not snowing, but it has. It, so a week ago, it snowed. We got a real huge dumping of snow. And the temperature here has not risen above freezing since then. So we've just had that. It's just been here for a week. And um, on all, certainly on all the, the pavements, the sidewalks, as American listeners will know them, where people have been walking up and down them for a week. It's just all been trodden down into like sheet ice now. It's just treacherous. You can't really walk anywhere faster than about one mile an hour because if you do, you'll go ass over tit. So it's um, <laughs> it's been fun. Even, I mean, people have been abandoning their cars and there's been tons of crashes, you know, people trying to drive up hills and then they just slide backwards down the hill. It's been a mess. Oh my God. I've seen in my my hometown down in Devon as well. They had to abandon the bus, I think, because it went up a particular road on its route that wasn't salted. They didn't grit the road, so the bus <laughs> got stuck. Yeah, it it has been whack. I mean, it's ridiculous, really. You know, you'd think that after however many years of existence, the country would have learned how to deal with a bit of snow. But no, especially when you look at Canada, for example. And they have like feet of snow every year and everything just works as normal. Well, the opposite of streets with grit on them, um, Taj, how's your Christmas going here in Southern California? (laughs) It's going great. It's going great. Actually, um, I'm going somewhere in the snow for Christmas. Oh, nice. I I don't want to divulge the location because, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that and going with family. And so it should be a lot of fun. You could tell us and we'll beep it. <laughs> Can I tell you off the air? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it should be a lot of fun. My um, my kids haven't been in snow yet, so that's going to be oh, exciting. Oh, nice. Are they excited about the whole Christmas experience? Are they into it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Christmas is a big one for us. Halloween and Christmas are like the two big ones. That's awesome. And it's been pretty cold here in SoCal. So, Taj, I'm in San Diego and I've been freezing. <laughs> Yeah, I have a heat dish right on me right now as yeah. we're talking. So it's quiet though, so that's good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. We might not have snow, but I've been so cold. <laughs> What's a heat dish? It's like a it's like a fan, but it's like it's it's a heater. It looks like a circular fan, but I guess emits a lot of heat. Right. Yeah. We would not survive in London, Charlie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't do well in cold. You know, I've never seen snow. I've still never seen snow. Really? Wow. Never seen snow ever in never. your life? Wow. 
ever. Well, this might blow your minds, but every country I've ever lived in, my first Christmas in that country was white with snow, including Australia. Wow. Really? Where did it snow in Australia? Uh, I was down in Melbourne in 2006 and I had snow up to my knees. Granted, we had to climb a, a hill or a mountain to get to it, but it was crazy. I remember my cousin on the morning, it was raining and horrible and she looked up at the mountains, let out an expletive and went, that snow. So we drove up there and had a look at it. And then two days later, I got sunburnt through my jeans at the MCG watching England be terrible at cricket. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love that. I was going to ask uh, Taj how his little family's going and they're growing up nicely and yeah. everyone's happy and healthy. Yeah, I mean it's 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 fun juggling two kids. They're amazing. I wake up and I I feel so blessed just to have you know kids and you know such wonderful kids as I do. And so yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. Not as much sleep as I normally would get, but <laughs> I didn't get much sleep anyway. But yeah, I'm getting less than that. And but I do. Lo- I look at my dad differently because I know he had three of us and it's just, I can imagine the amount of work that he had to do at that point in, in, in general. So obviously my mom as well, but my dad was also on the road a lot and stuff like that. Still planning for number three? Uh, yeah, I, I would love a number three. Uh, three is the lucky number for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Taj, I have to tell you, this is completely silly, but my husband and I watch Wheel of Fortune he really is into Wheel of Fortune. We watch it like every single day. And I swear to God, anytime anyone picks the letter T, I, there are always three T's, like every time. <laughs> I have to start watching that because, yeah. <laughs> and every time it comes up, I'm like, ah, three T yet again. <laughs> so, awesome. yes, three is the lucky number. <laughs> yeah, three is the lucky number, especially with T's. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is very exciting. Cool. Well, uh, and then, um, Jamin, we didn't really get to hear from you. Are you guys prepping for Christmas too over there? Oh, yeah, big time. It's uh, pretty hectic in the Bull household at the moment. Similar to Taj, you know, having two kids is a whole different ball game we're finding. Uh, we thought we didn't have much time with one kid, but two kids is just, yeah, a next level of crazy. So lots of busyness looking after the kids. My wife hasn't been too well either. She's been quite sick in and out of hospital, but mm. now on the road to recovery, thank goodness, Good. which, which is nice. And then, of course, we're through all of that, you know, we're trying to edit these episodes as as we record now we have the goal of getting four episodes out over the next week, <laughs> which wow. we, we have never Whoa. done before. Yeah. Usually it's been one a month or one every two weeks at a max. And now we're in a position where we've got like, yeah, four episodes that we need to somehow get out. But we've got a whole team of people around the world working on it. We've got people in Texas, <laughs> um, Australia. It's just, it's all happening. So hopefully we can achieve it. Hey, Carter. Absolutely. It's uh, it's a labor of love. It's very hard work and long hours to do an edit, but what we get at the end of it, um, well, I think the, the results are clear for all to see. This season has been truly outstanding. It really, really has. And yeah, I don't know how you guys do all you do with having kids in tow and, and busy jobs and all that, but thank you guys so much for all the time you've been putting in and good luck to us all in getting these episodes out. Oh my God. <laughs> We're going to need it. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'm standing by to do my little social media art and, and website text. So I'm ready. Just watch out. Charlie Thompson, you'll be editing next as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I keep saying, oh, I wish I could help do audio editing, but I don't think you guys would want me to attempt that. I think it'd be a big disaster. So. <laughs> well, Charlie pretends like he can't do it, but then one of our episodes is that World Music Award documentary one that he did. He pulled that one out of the bag after pretending he was a bit of a Luddite. Yeah. Well, have you listened to that recently? Because it does sound like it was recorded through a potato. I mean, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, why don't we go ahead and jump in? We have a lot of news to get through and some other topics to discuss. Um, so for all this, you know, chat about Christmas, yay, 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 ho, 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 happy Santa Day. Um, I actually want to backtrack a little bit to Halloween because we didn't really get a chance on the show to discuss the amazing Thriller Night party. And three of the five of us on this recording um, were there for that night. So I'd love to talk a little bit about this party, um, which, of course, listeners will know is um, an annual party held at the famous Jackson family home, Havenhurst in Encino. And it was held this year on Halloween weekend, two nights, actually, on October 28th and 29th. And it is also a fundraiser. It benefits the Heal LA Foundation, as well as the D.D. Jackson Foundation. Um, and Taj, actually, I would love to start with you because you are so deeply involved in this party. Maybe you can tell us just to start a little bit more about it from um, your perspective, like um, exactly, you know, kind of the scope of what it benefits, some of those details. I'd um, love to hear directly from you. Yeah, the, the party's interesting because, you know, we start planning for it uh, we started in February, um, wow. actually meeting about it and started planning for it and the committees and stuff like that. Uh, it is something that takes a long time to put together in that way because it is a small unit working on it. And um, it was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work in itself just in terms of managing all the stuff. It's one of those things that you, when you said I was there, I was... I think I was physically there, mentally. <laughs> I don't know where I was because it was like, <laughs> it was so overwhelming in a good way. I was so happy that everyone came and everyone enjoyed it. But at the same time, it's just, there's so many moving parts and stuff like that. So I was talking to Prince the other day and it's the same thing. It's like, we're just recovering from it. We're still in that recovery mode even months after. But yeah, it, it was it was a great two nights uh, three, if you count the children, um, the um, the children day that we did as well, which was is probably the most rewarding part of the whole weekend for us. But yeah, it's important because obviously it benefits our charities, which we do a lot of work in loss and grief, and then Prince and, and John Mudo do a lot of work with um, helping all of LA and, and stuff like that, whether it's feeding the homeless or giving um, gifts to children during Christmas time. So we felt good that this was going to be kind of a family charity event in that way. But at the same time, it is a lot of work and, and you have to keep reminding yourself what the end goal is in that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and, and so I, I, I forgot the, and obviously this year was uh, the 40th anniversary of Thriller. So there was reason to celebrate. And that was also like the cherry on top. Absolutely. I think you guys really, I think you always go all out for this party, but this year you really went all out for the Thriller 40 celebration. Yeah, definitely. It was it was an excuse to do that. But at the same time, you know, we knew that this, you know, my uncle and, and Prince's dad and 
he deserved it mm-hmm. and he deserves that honor. And and we also knew that the media was going to be sluggish to do it. So we were going to do it before they did it. It was amazing to watch um, from the outside looking in. I couldn't be there. Um, hopefully one day I'll be able to go. But I tell you what, the just the amount of people that seem to go every year of, you know, people that worked with Michael or Jackson family members seems to grow every year. This year there were people there like, John Landis and Matt Forger. And I'm curious to know how security plays into it because there's a lot of people on that property at that time that are, you know, influential, important people. Do you have to really take that seriously? Yeah. I mean, we definitely, there is this, there is always a concern for security, but at the same time, we vet a lot of people first in that way. So we're always looking to make sure that the people that go through those gates are people that, we can trust in terms of not having to worry about that kind of things. And and we've been very blessed that that's been the case in that because yes, I think everyone else we try to make a family atmosphere when you're walking around the property, everyone is treated the same. Everyone walking through those gates is important and is part of the family. And so that's how we approach it. Well, there definitely is a family feeling to this party. And I would like to talk actually about some of the fun details. But first, I want to say that I was reflecting on the party a few days after the fact. And I kind of to what you're saying, Taj, what I felt was really special about it is that, you know, I've been to my share of fundraisers over the years, right, which this at the heart is is a fundraiser, of course. But what makes it so special is that everyone, I mean, you guys, you know, the organizers, everyone everyone who has put so much time into making it happen, and everyone who attended, the VIP guests, the fans, there is just such love in the air for Michael Jackson and his family and everyone who has made this party possible that it is, I think, just one of the warmest, most genuine, most fun love-filled events I have ever been to in my life, let alone just one of the most fun parties I've ever been to. Thank you. Yeah. That, that means a lot because we we that's what we aim for. That's the most important part of that is you, you would be surprised at the people we've turned away in terms of whether it's celebrity or influencers that don't have the right, they're not there for the right reasons in that way. And so they don't get invited. And then what we look for or what I should say I've looked for in terms of invites to those kind of people is basically, were they there at the toughest times? Mm. Did they support Michael? Did they support our family? And they move up to the top of the list right away. We don't go off of a, oh, this is an A-lister, B-lister, or C-lister. We go off, I go off of, does this person support the family in that way, um, he or she? And that is my priority in that way, because that's the kind of people that I would want on the property dancing and celebrating are the people that were there at the toughest times. Can I ask, Taj, for, for people like myself who are considering going in future, especially for overseas, what exactly is the process to obtain a ticket to come to this event? Um, <laughs> it changes every year, so that's why I laugh. <laughs> and that way we're still trying to figure that out because – you know, this is a charity event. So at the same, it's kind of goes under that donation aspect of it, but it is almost like a first come first serve when, when the tickets are announced and there's only a limited amount because at the same time, we don't want this to get out of control as it is. It's we're raising money for these, for both charities. 
in that. So there's not really a process at one point. There's just the tickets go on sale or, and those tickets represent a donation of a certain amount. And that fluctuates in, in terms of depending on what number we come up with where it's a good do- donation. But at the same time, we feel like it's worth that person's money in that way to come to this event because we know a lot of people are traveling from overseas. So we're trying to give them something that they'll never experience again in that way. And trying to bring people, as you said, people in the Michael universe that they'll never probably get to meet elsewhere. So my experience of buying the tickets was just that they posted on Facebook um, with the Heal LA Foundation page Mm -hmm. and made it pretty clear when they were available. So, um, you know, we can definitely on our accounts share next year as soon as those become available. But I absolutely, to every fan who's considered going, I 100% support getting there at least once in your life. It's, you know, great cause, great people. I love what you said, Taj, about you guys really thinking about who you want to invite. I think that was very obvious that that you guys had put care into that. And there were so many fantastic VIP guests. I mean, well, of course, you were there. Your brother TJ was there. Prince was there. Um, BG was there. Uh, I believe Paris was there the first night. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, I mean, Kevin Dorsey, Travis Payne, Sugarfoot, um, Matt Forger. There were so so, so many people, um, so many yeah. VIP guests. And a lot of interesting surprise VIP guests, too. Like, I remember um, Salif, the, the French moonwalker guy, dancer, was there. <laughs> and he – it was – so much fun watching him dance on the like dance floor you guys had set up with the full scale like thriller short film uh, movie theater. It was incredible, and he was so happy. And there, uh, it was just it was phenomenal. There, but I I could probably list for an hour all the special guests. It was amazing. <laughs> but they were all just so everyone was so friendly. Everyone was dancing. Everyone was happy. Um, there were all kinds of activities set up and games and food and zombies walking around. You guys had done the entire second floor of the house as a, a maze that I screamed through the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was. I'm happy you screamed. Yeah. Oh, I so oh, I screamed my head off. I think I truly annoyed my husband. <laughs> you were scared, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it was great, though. It was, um, and then also some some new features. Oh, and I, I guess I should explain to back just back up a tiny bit is the way it's set up um, at Havenhurst, which this was my first time going to Havenhurst, which is such a beautiful home. Oh my goodness. Mm. It is so special and so gorgeous. And just um, also the property is humongous. I didn't realize how big, uh, what a big piece of land it it really is on. But you know, you walk in and you walk down the driveway and there are just all these photos of Michael that are just, you know, big kind of life-size, like big posters on the fences. And then you walk up to the house and it's so beautifully lit up. And there are just in every corner of the house and the property. And then you walk into the patio area with, of course, the movie theater, like I mentioned. And then you guys have some new features, too, as I understand. I believe this was the first year that you guys opened up for viewing the recording studio. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, this was the first year that we did that. That was important to us because we were celebrating Thriller 40. And at the same time, I know that I, as someone, would want to see the studio that Michael recorded a lot of his demos and and kind of messed around with the Thriller album in terms of figuring out what went where and stuff like that. I, I would want to see that. I, I would not want 
someone to point to a location and be like, oh, yeah, you c- it's there, but you c- we can't open the door and let you see it mm-hmm. in that way. So it, there was a lot of work that went into that in, in terms of getting it prepared in time because that was a last minute decision um oh, really? that um and shout out to prince for making that happen he he was instrumental in that uh decision mm-hmm. obviously with this year being the 40th anniversary of thriller there was some extra effort put in do you think that you've raised the goalpost so high now that each year you're going to have to try and find a way to top that <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, is, and, you know, I, I, I said, sh- um, shout out to Prince, but, you know, there's, there's a secret mad scientist behind this, uh, Janice <laughs> Smith. And Janice, every year, she seems to top the next, the earlier party. And so she's kind of the one that keeps the glue, is the glue of the party. And so, and I've never underestimated her anyway, but she, it, every year it just gets bigger and bigger. And so I think what's exciting about next year is we already have some ideas of how to add on to this party. So I would not say that that was it and it's going to be you know downhill from there. I would actually say there's a lot of exciting things that we figured that we couldn't do this year that we would want to do next year in that way. Very, very cool. I think you're going to explode all our brains with whatever else you do. Um, (laughs) I also do want to mention for anyone considering going that you guys also have open what you call the legacy room, which is pretty spectacular, which has a lot of Michael Jackson memorabilia in it. And this year, I know there were a bunch of his Grammys. There were several jackets from the Thriller short film. There was the Thriller white suit on display and a bunch of different props um, and like the masks and things like that from the Ghosts short film as well. And that was so cool to see. Yeah, it's it's always exciting to see whether it's costumes, whether it's masks, whether it's awards that you've seen it on TV and now here it is in person in that way. And so the Legacy Room was definitely an exciting room for, I know, the fans um, to, to, to kind of see in person. Cool. And Charlie, you have to tell us your impressions because I know you've been to this party for a few years and it was so fun to see you there. Yeah, uh, I've been twice. I would echo everything that you said. It's just an amazing event, a very warm and friendly event. I'm not really a party person. Generally, I just <laughs> I, I just hate parties. No. You know. <laughs> Normally, if anyone was to say, "Do you want to come to a party?" It'd just be a hard no, just under no circumstances. But it, it, it's not really like a party. You know, it's like um, yeah. it's just like a bunch of friends getting together. Mm-hmm. And the all the enter. I missed so much of the entertainment. Uh, to be honest, the next day, somebody told me the next day that Kathy Sledge from Sister Sledge had performed. I was like. Did she? Yes. Yeah, I missed that completely. I missed Salif. But that's just because the the main draw for me is that so many of my friends are there. And Mm -hmm. living in the UK, it's like it's a one it's it's like having all your friends from America there in one place that you can uh, see them all. It's just amazing. You get to see Taj, you, Elise, and Jarrett. And uh, Constantinos, shout out to Constantinos, who yes, also yes. helps to put the party together and do the maze and stuff. Yeah, he was, he was, when I say instrumental in the maze, he was beyond instrumental. Like, if you went through that maze and enjoyed it, that was, you know, I would say 95% 
Constantinos is the reason for that. I oh, think well. enjoyed is not the word I would use, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think, it, I think it did its job. <laughs> well, and Constantinos, I just also have to give a shout out because he was so busy that night. I hardly got to say hello to him. So hello, Constantinos, if you're listening. And also, yeah. he was dressed as John Landis, yes. and it was about the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and he's wow. clearly, he's fooled Jamin. Because John Landis was not there, but Constantinos was there as John Landis. <laughs> oh my god! I I have been tricked. <laughs> You've been duped. Yeah. Oh, good job, Constantinos. Wow. Yeah. 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 It was great, but it was just so, yeah, it was so much fun. So many fans were there, fans from all over the world. I could not believe it. Like people had come from Australia, from the UK, from Germany, from all over the United States. A lot of people that went there for both nights. Some of our fellow podcasters and MJ content creators were there. Jenkins was there, who's really fun to meet. Jenkins, you are so tall. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and MJ Fangirl was there. I mean, ev- everybody was was there and it was just uh, really fantastic. I got to meet Vernet. Um, who was on one of our previous episodes. She was there both nights. She is an epic fan. So yeah, it was great. It was so exciting. I will absolutely be back. I cannot wait for my little baby daughter to be old enough to bring. And it's going to be a regular part of our lives going forward. So just thank you, Taj, so much to you and everyone who makes it possible because it is a such a special event. I knew it was special, but I didn't quite know how special and I will never, ever, ever forget it. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's three other names. Uh, Jennifer, Abel, and Danny, um, they were also instrumental mm-hmm. in the party. And I wouldn't feel right if we got off this topic and I didn't mention them as well. Well, thanks to all of you so, so, so much. From the bottom of our hearts, you're doing something so special. Awesome. That was exciting. Uh, well, let's yeah, let's go ahead and I could I could talk about the thriller party for like six hours, but <laughs> I know I, I could too. That's why I was like I had to. I was very trying to be short with it because I could literally. It was so great. Um, but yeah, let's let's move on to our next topic. So we have a little surprise on social media lately. Um, the one and only John Branca has popped up on TikTok of all places, um, as well as of course that bleeds over into. Instagram with a um, very dynamic channel full of little tidbits (laughs) of Michael Jackson history and questions about a casino and a museum and, you know, the time that Elvis Presley gave cars to the mafia, (laughs) which he somehow connects with Michael Jackson. Anyway, it's, it's kind of a wild world out there, which has just started a few weeks ago and has really been causing a buzz among the fan community. Jamin, I know you have some strong feelings about this. Do you want to start on this topic? Oh, I just... I don't know. Like, it's just came out of nowhere. (laughs) It really is a strange thing where, you know, for thinking about the first decade after, you know, Michael passing away and John Branca was kind of this figure that was, um, you know, to put it mildly, very controversial in the community, you know, um, obviously all the questions about the will, obviously all the questions about, you know, the Michael album and the Casio tracks and, you know, his reluctance to be, open with fans about those things. And then I guess just out of nowhere, bam, this sort of mysterious figure joins TikTok of all social media platforms, not Twitter, not somewhere where he can sort of, <laughs> he's a lawyer, right? So you'd think he'd join somewhere where he can put out his thoughts in text form, but he's on um, TikTok with these incredibly kitschy videos with like beeps and boops all throughout them and little click sounds and like little emoji things coming up everywhere and 
it's just a, a, a an odd, I don't know, just a, an interesting decision, I would say, that it's almost daily now. He's got a, a new video out talking about something to do with Michael Jackson. And one of the ones that really kind of got me thinking was sort of this one he said, they're working on a museum, which awesome. That's great. How cool is that? Would love to go to a Michael Jackson themed museum and see artifacts from Michael's life. But then also a casino, you know, with I'm assuming Michael Jackson themed slot machines, which are already in Las Vegas. And it just kind of made me think about like, would, you know, to what extent would Michael want a casino? So yeah, it is, you you described it well. It's wild. It's wild to see these videos every day. <laughs> I follow John on TikTok. I don't, but I haven't been on TikTok in a while, but when he joined, I, I did follow. So I, I think I saw the first two that he did and stuff like that. And so I don't know what the other posts were and stuff like that. I was just aware that the, some of them were like just tidbits on Thriller or, or what Michael had accomplished and stuff like that. So I don't know if I'm the person qualified to talk about the Instagram and stuff like that. Yeah, because I mean, I just joined TikTok maybe six months ago, seven months ago. How has your TikTok journey been? Can you tell us about well, that? Well, <laughs> I, I haven't post, I haven't posted since, okay. which is which disappointed many. I put the baby um, yeah. tape on there, which I was super excited about doing. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna do this, and then I was like, what am I doing on TikTok? Like, I don't even know what to do on TikTok. Like, what do you do? I, I don't dance, so I'm not gonna do the latest trend or anything like that. And I'm kind of secretive with with stuff that I'm working on in the, in that way. So it was really hard for me to. I think as my kids get older, I'll I'll do stuff with them and stuff. But at the same time, I just, I didn't know what material to put on there. Taj, I have a quick question about, yeah. by the way, I don't have TikTok and I'm not following anyone on TikTok because I don't uh, use it. But I I just thought you didn't follow me. No, no, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> some, I have seen some of the videos because they end up in circulation on Twitter and things. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was one where John Branker said that there was a, some kind of proposal to turn Havenhurst into a museum, a tourist mm -hmm. attraction, which struck me as a strange idea because, of course, Havenhurst is in the middle of a residential street and it does not have a giant parking lot attached to it. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the viability or the feasibility of actually doing that? Would it actually be feasible to turn Havenhurst into a tourist attraction? Because it seems like something that would be very difficult to do. You know, we've had so many different events there, 300, 400 people. My wedding was there, which was about 200 and something people. And right down the street, there's a park and go or a public parking area that if there was a shuttle that took people to and from, I could see that working. Um, there's also a baseball field right next door that has ample parking. I know the Gelson's next door doesn't allow parking, so that's a no-go. But I don't know. I mean, I think it all depends on what the city agrees. So it's it's really up to the city. And if the city thinks they can make some money off of it, then they probably will allow it. I don't have an opinion of whether Haymonder should be turning to museum, only because it's still like a home to me in that way. I grew up there. And so for me, Havenhurst is just home. It, it, I feel like if it's a museum, it's almost like that it'll never be a home again. And I'm, I'm just, it's just wishful thinking. But at the same time, I would love to have a Michael museum 
or a Jackson Museum, something celebrating the family and celebrating all the accomplishments. So, and Havenhurst would be an, an incredible place for that if that was the case, because it was the Jacksons' home. It was the Jackson Five and and Latoya and Janet, and I think Rebe was out before they were living there. But yeah, I think that would be. I don't know. I I, I have mixed feelings, but I'm. I'm not against a museum because I know my uncle wanted a museum at one point for his stuff. And then another quick question would be, you know, clearly the estate exists to serve its beneficiaries, one of whom is your grandmother. What do you think would be her position on the propriety of uh, a Michael Jackson casino? A casino in Gary, I think, was the detail he gave, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's very interesting because my, my grandma, um, I'm okay. I'm going to give you two point of views. I'm going to give you my uncle's point of view, which is I know in the past, my uncle thought about casinos and stuff like that and, and different things way back in the day, mm-hmm. obviously. So I would be lying if I said, oh, like, you know, I'm against a casino because Michael wouldn't want a casino. Now that never materialized, but it was one something in a grand scheme of things. But at the same time, I do know my grandma's highly religious, but I've never heard her against a casino. Um, I mean, she did live in Vegas for a little while, and she has a place in Vegas, and that's casino um, <laughs> town or casino casino country, basically. I mean, even that's a, a a city. So I don't know. I don't. I, I yeah I I can't make an assumption in that way. I don't know what a casino would be for uh, the family. I think anything that celebrates the family for me is kind of one of those things that I have like a such a low threshold now because I've had to not give up certain things, but just I've had to let certain things go. That anything that's a positive, I kind of champion and I kind of cheerlead on in that way because we've lost so much. I like your idea, Taj, if it ever, if anything ever came of this, that it really should actually be a Jackson family museum, not just Michael Jackson. I think that's totally on point. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just, I, I think so. I just, I, and I'm not going to go into a rant or anything like that. Um, and if I do stop me, but I was on Facebook just recently and, and one of the Michael Jackson fan clubs or, or fan uh, pages, it was just, I was, as I was reading I, I forgot what they were even talking about. It was just, it was borderline on d- disrespectful to the rest of the brothers. It was victory tour. I saw the post. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. I'm one of those people and, and I grew up in that way. My uncle always said, you don't have to, you don't have to minimize someone else to make yourself better. That's why Michael never publicly talked about other artists in terms of, or um, even though they always edged him on to because he always believed that you should make yourself better. And um, I just felt like there's certain people in the community, in the MJ community, and the, and some of them might not even know they're doing this. They feel like in order to make Michael bigger, they have to make other people smaller. And it's, it's not healthy only because it doesn't look right. They were doing it to the brothers. And, and I can tell you as someone that was around the Victory Tour era a lot that a lot of Michael's greatest times are around that victory tour era and his happiest times. And to, to make it equated to, he was just doing it for his brothers because his brothers needed money is such a sin. And it's a narrative that I'm, I'm hearing over and over. 
Yes, he could have toured on his own, of course. But at the same time, there's something exciting about touring with his brothers again, and all his brothers again, even though that's not what happened. But there was that excitement too, and his mom wanted that to happen as well. Yeah, on the Victory Tour um, specifically, it'll be interesting to see what narrative is put forward in the upcoming CNN documentary on that tour. Oh, there's a documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about I didn't to know come that. out. I think it's just weeks away. Um, J. Randy Trabarelli revealed that he was. Oh, okay. For- I've seen a yeah. I've seen a little pieces of that, or I've seen him post about that. Yeah, you know, because one of the things, and we'll get into other stuff, I'm sure later. But what I'm always worried about is who controls the narrative and what picture do they paint in the narrative? Because this narrative of of the brothers being broke and needing money, where and Michael doing the victory tour as a, a charitable act to them is not a fair trait and not a fair, uh, I guess, story to tell in that way. And it's it's a story that the fans have, some of the fans have run. And yes, Michael did donate all his money to charity because he was very upset at the the cost of the tickets. They were high at that point, which now looking back at it, like, knowing other artists and how much they charge, you know, $30 is a lot back then. Mm. I think that would be the equivalent of a hundred dollars today, but now you see tickets for 200, 300, a thousand and whatever going for artists. And so it's not as ridiculous, but I guess the Jacksons, because they were one of the first to do it, it was bad publicity. I I was just going to say, it's not just the fans. It's um, I think there's probably a reason that we're seeing an uptick in fan discussion about uh the victory tour and uh, supposedly michael being forced into it and hating it because that's a narrative that's being pushed by the estate on two fronts right now firstly in the broadway musical it's quite a central yeah. element of the plot to the broadway musical and also in their thriller 40 documentary which we may discuss at some point later yeah and i think that's the just I always go off of what my brain and my memories tell me and and just how my uncle was and and what we talked about in that way and we we've asked him plenty of times we asked him about the victory tour and even just me growing up and being around during that time period it's just it goes against everything that I witnessed and experienced and I it's those narratives it's a narrative that like Michael didn't like touring with his brothers which I, you know, is also something that bothered me or that he would never have toured with his brothers again or never wanted to work with his brothers again, which now we know is not true because he's, we've found out facts about that. But I think that's the, the problem with these narratives is sometimes people run with them because that's all they had at the time and they didn't have the inside source saying it. And yes, he, um, had thriller and it was, the biggest album and he could have easily done a solo tour and it would have done equally probably as good but there was something magical about that victory tour and with his brothers that can't be duplicated do you think there's an element of tactical marketing should we say with uh, that whole narrative around the time saying oh, this will be the last time that michael performs with the brothers to try and drive up ticket sales or Oh, well, of course. I mean, they did the same thing with Motown 25, like, mm. and every time, and then the 30th anniversary, it's like, this is the last time we're going to see Michael with his brothers. And, um, and I think that always makes it exciting in terms of, uh, the reuniting 
one last time. And it would be the same thing with Destiny's Child. Every time Beyonce, you see Beyonce and whether it's Kelly or Michelle join in the group, it's like it's something unique about it. Very interesting. The the thing for me is the victory tour. Like if you take that time period of my life, it's one of the most joyful periods that probably five year span is one of the highlights of my life. And so I remember things vividly. And it was also, I just remember how happy my uncle was during that thriller era, during the victory tour era in general. And and it's it's weird because I can understand two things with my uncle. One thing being, and both things can exist. When you're in a group, and especially if the group has family and all that stuff, and you don't have a family yet, and you want to move one way and they have to move another way, because they're a lot slower, they have to think about their families, and you're thinking about how much bigger can I get, and how many more things can I do, and you feel like this train is moving slower because you have to get six people's opinion as opposed, or well, five people's opinion, mm-hmm. as opposed to just one opinion, then yeah, like it does slow you down. And I understand that. But at the same time, I know my uncle loved performing with his brothers and he loved seeing them on stage with him. And there's something of a protectiveness in that that can't be duplicated with other people. And so that's also kind of goes through my head too. Yes, the the solo tours and whatever he was able to reach heights that even he's never reached before because he literally was free to to make his own decisions and not have to vote by committee i would say or which i've been very um used to with my brothers in that way with 3T and stuff like that so it is easier when you're voting not when you can make your own decisions but at the same time there is that comfort of being there on stage with your brothers and being protected by your family and also knowing that you're not alone and and cuz touring life can be very lonely do you think that possibly the narrative of uh, this put out there about Michael not wanting to tour with the brothers is perhaps accented by things that he said and did, such as this is our last and final show at the last show of the Victory Tour and hinting that he may not perform with his brothers again? Yeah, I, I do think that. I, I do think that, you know, you do want to hype up the tour and you want to hype up that like this is what you're about to see might not ever happen again. But at the same time, that's part of being a salesman. And a lot of artists do that. They say, this is my farewell tour, or this, you know, I'm not going to be, uh, well, this is it. it was like that. This is it. And part of me for even with this is it, when he was saying that about his, his tour, part of me was like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have never accepted that he would never be on stage again in concert. I always thought, okay, give it five, 10 years, he'll be back on stage again with another tour. Because it's one of those things, especially if you've done it your whole life, it's, there's no other feeling like that to, to reach the fans and perform on stage. And it's something that you can't explain unless you're up there and, and you see it. And so I definitely think that there was that magic with the brothers. And of course, at the same time, he loved performing with his brothers, but there is the brotherhood thing and the voting and everything else that goes with that. I think you're right with what you're saying about plenty of artists are out there doing multiple farewell tours. There's a running joke here in Australia that John Farnham 
does is is come back every year and even Elton John at the moment is doing his 250th one <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say Elton yeah I know Elton John's a, yeah he he's he's notorious for that yeah. look you know at that time maybe they really believe it in that way that this is you know this is the last time I'll be on stage or whatever and, and it was interesting you brought up this is it as well because that's the only time I ever saw your uncle in in person was at the announcement at the O2 mm. in London for the This Is It tour. And the thing that piqued my interest wasn't what he said, it was what he didn't say. And what he said was, these will be my final show performances in London. And I thought yeah. to myself, mm -hmm. okay, so where else are you going with this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that was, yeah, implied. Um, Taj, I just hope that with this upcoming Victory Tour documentary on CNN, that some of your family members will be interviewed if they haven't been already. Because, I mean, how do you make a victory to a documentary without talking to the brothers? And I think that's, we'll, we'll talk about this a little later in the episode, I guess, when we get to talking about the new Thriller 40 documentary. But I think that's one of the bigger criticisms around that as well. You're, you're dealing with a time period and a tour where there's some voices excluded that were central to that. Yeah. And, and I think it's just, it's, it's a it's a matter of understanding that and and knowing you know the Jackson Five were not just backup dancers and 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 artists for Michael Jackson in that way they were a group they were a unit and I think that's more come from just the I didn't even want to say younger generation I just think if there's a certain um, fraction that or faction that basically believes that the brothers existed just to back up Michael Jackson. Well, I hope, I hope that in the long run history, fan communities and the general public can start to get a better sense of the full picture. And I mean, thank you Taj too, for all your comments on this. I think they're really important and your perspective is invaluable. Um, I can say from seeing your father at solo shows <laughs> that he was certainly not just there supporting your uncle. <laughs> he is so amazing <laughs> no, um, on his own. And and all your uncles are so incredible too. You know, I, I, I take a lot of pride in, in my uncles. And as much as I hype up my Uncle Michael, and he doesn't need hype, you know, but I'm so proud of all the accomplishments that he's done that will never be matched. I do feel like there's this big shadow on the rest of the family mm. and they don't get the credit that they deserve. They don't, you know, as, as a sensation as Michael was at 11 years old singing on the Ed Sullivan show, there was Jermaine, you know, playing bass at 14 and my dad playing guitar at 15. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just at the Ed Sullivan show, they were playing live those performances. And, you know, it's like, I listen to those. I watch those shows and I'm like so amazed at the talent. And it took a family of talent. It just wasn't Michael singing by himself. It was the whole package that got them from Gary, Indiana to LA, you know, and hitting big. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, and then speaking of hype, I do want to circle back to John Breka's TikTok just for a moment because we, we, got off on a very, very interesting and valuable um, side conversation. But I, I did just want to make one point personally about how I feel about what John Branca is doing um, before we totally leave that topic. And, you know, I feel like, and I think the whole fan community feels like 
the Michael Jackson estate obviously has not done the internet well, right? Their Twitter account is notoriously bad. There are all these accounts that make fun of their posts. They do not do a good job, right? So they're trying to come in and finally do something. And it maybe is the right move. I think it taps into obviously what TikTok does well. I think it taps into what some other content creators like The Detail is doing well. There are some interesting tidbits here. We get to see some memorabilia. But what baffles me is how it's being turned into, well, I guess it doesn't baffle me because this is always how it's been. John Branca taking credit for everything Michael Jackson ever did. And that is the whole focus of this TikTok account, which I find really bizarre. So that's a little disappointing. I I hope it will evolve into a place that maybe it is a little more useful. But right now I find it rather mystifying. Don't know if you guys agree with that. or Yeah, <laughs> uh, I agree with it. I really agree yeah. with that, Elise. There is, I think there is a purpose that can be served from it. And that can be seen with the one video he did around ABC the network channel canceling the Chris Brown tribute performance at the American, was it the American Music Awards, AMAs? Yes. Where mm-hmm. he directly called that out and said, you know, ABC made the, ro- the wrong decision here, et cetera. And I think that was, that was very direct. It spread really well. It was clear. It was to the point. And that's a, I think that purpose is a great one. All of the other videos you're mentioning around, oh, Michael did this thing one time, but it was actually me behind the scenes making it all possible because I'm a genius. Like they're they're the ones that are a bit distasteful, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also just a general wider problem of the MJ social media accounts not making use of their own asset. So Damien Shields texts me quite regularly, sort of frothing at the mouth and saying, have you seen this latest thing that the the estate has (laughs) tweeted? It'll be like a video of a seven-year-old fan doing you know, an admirable attempt at doing some kind of Michael Jackson dance routine for a seven-year-old. But it's like, when was the last time they posted a video of Michael doing something? You know, you're the Michael Jackson estate. There exist thousands and thousands of hours of footage of Michael Jackson doing amazing stuff. They never post any of it. They never share any of it. The whole social media presence seems to be about directing attention away from Michael Jackson. And we've spoken about it on the show before, but it's almost like there is this concerted attempt to separate Michael Jackson, the concept from Michael Jackson, the man, possibly because they feel that he is in some way tainted or difficult to market. And so all of their effort seems to go into promoting proxy Michael Jackson. So it's the Cirque du Soleil show. It's the Broadway musical thing. It's a cartoon of thriller. It's it's CDs that don't even have Michael's face on, that kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, it does just seem to be part of this much bigger years-long situation where the estate tends to point in a direction anywhere other than at Michael Jackson. Yeah, and never has that been clearer than this year with Thriller 40 when the estate have failed to market their 4K, their beautiful 4K remasters of Beat It and, and Thriller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've been listening to you guys and I have an interesting take as I, as I was listening because I do follow the accounts of, of you know, the Michael Jackson on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I, and it just popped in my head just now. What if, and, and this is just a what if, cause it, it would make sense to me. I feel like 
and and me being a fan of my uncle as well, I know what I would want to see. But what if they weren't going after or servicing the fans that were already here, but going after the people that weren't fans and trying to get new fans, and that was their focus? And I'm not saying that's the right strategy, but what if they were doing it that way as opposed to, you know, it's like, oh, we already have the people here. Let's try and get more outside of that bubble in that way. And you run the risk of obviously alienating the people that actually got you there and, and the people that are the biggest supporters. But that's that would kind of like now as you guys were talking, that would make more sense because like no one asked for the cartoon or no one asked for this, but maybe they're going after dif different demographics. Maybe they're trying to get, you know, X amount of fans from this demographic or this or that. Hey, anime is big. Let's do an anime. And so that's that would make sense to me if they were trying to do it that way. I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. I'm just saying that that's the only way I can wrap my head around um, certain strategies in that. And so the Thriller 40th 4K, that is something the fans have been dying to see. But it's not something that the general public even, it's not even on their radar. So that's why I was, I was like, maybe that might be one of the disconnects in that. I think there might be something in that for sure. And unfortunately, the numbers probably support that in terms of their sales because the projects that they've tried to do, which have been the most respectful to Michael and his direct artistic legacy, let's take Bad 25, for example. Let's just mm -hmm. ignore the uh, <laughs> a couple of remixes on that. But, you know, that's a package which is, I guess, pointed to by fans as probably being the most comprehensive effort they've done to honoring a certain album or era where you've got a lot of outtakes, you've got a concert release, you've got a great documentary by Spike Lee, all of those things in one package. And famously, it did not sell very well at all. Yet you compare that to things like the Cirque shows, which have very little to do with Michael except his music, and they have been astronomic successes. So I think you're probably right. It's probably the t the estate team looking at the numbers and going, well, when we do things that market to not the core fan base or outside the core fan base, they actually do really well. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy probably. Well, I look at it because I'm looking at it as, as a moviegoer and, you know, I I'm famously love the Transformers and, and the, the Transformers that I got before in terms of movie wise i didn't think was faithful to the brand and i was very vocal about that but then i got my bumblebee movie which i loved and anyone that was like a diehard transformer generation one loved that movie and it got a lot of praise but unfortunately it didn't make as much money as the michael bays did and so it's kind of one of those things is as you said it's like the numbers are what people go off of you know not the excitement of the fans and stuff like that i, I was just throw i was kind of throwing a wrench into that <laughs> into that arg um into that thing just because i always try and see things from both sides now i'm someone that always thinks you should always service the people that got you there mm. and the people you run the risk of losing the fan base when you go after other fan bases and don't make your fans fan base the priority but i'm also not a numbers person and that way i'm more of a heart and feel person i actually do think things like restoring the videos actually hits kind of the middle ground between these two places because um, I know there was an earlier comment that maybe the new fans don't necessarily care, but 
I think, you know, Thriller, for example, I mean, Thriller, like most iconic music video ever in the history of music, was in pretty terrible quality Mm -hmm. on like YouTube before Mm -hmm. that, right? And so when you think about, even if it's mostly the fans who care about it being restored and notice the details of what that restoration really means, I still actually think doing things like that is essential to catching the eye of the next generation, you know, so that when it pops up on their feed, they're like, oh, you know, what is this? And it actually looks good instead of the super dark, you could barely see it, um, (laughs) you know, crumbly (laughs) vision that it was before. So I I think this kind of thing, the restorations um, can become really, really important for both existing fans and that potential next generation of consumers and fans. Exactly. I think what I was saying was the timing. Like we wanted Mm, it on, we wanted it right at Thriller 40th. And for them, it's like, hey, when we get it, we get it in in that way. I agree. Um, But but yeah, in terms of restoration, especially since that video is, you know, in the Library of Congress, it should have been up res. It should should look pristine Mm -hmm. in that way, because that's the music video that everyone's going to compare other music videos to. So you're right. It, 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 It needed to be fixed. And since Michael Jackson is known for his incredible music videos, those videos should be in 4K at least. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think I want to echo a little bit what you said. And this is something that we spoke about in a Thriller 40 episode, which uh, if you're listening to this in the future, make sure you go out and check out because it's a, a good discussion. Thriller being in 4K and Beat It in 4K, and I understand that Billie Jean is on the way as well in 4K, is the best way to get up-to-date fans interested because mm-hmm. if you see something that's of lower quality you're more likely to skip and you know we had this discussion on that episode as well about the things that were included on thriller 40 and how positive it was that those short films and videos were made in 4k and how great they look as a result but then other decisions such as adding the 2008 versions by Kanye West and Fergie of different songs if you're trying to capture a new audience, then you know nothing says up to date like a 15 year old version of a 40 year old song. You know, <laughs> so I just don't, I don't, <laughs> I sort of understand sometimes the tactics that they're that they're taking. And just touching on John Branker again, I think a lot of people forget that he is essentially pro Michael Jackson, and it's in his interest to be pro Michael Jackson because it serves his own interest probably financially as well, but that's not my business. So he's not going to go out there and destroy Michael's legacy, but at the same time, you're sort of looking at some of the things that he's doing and you go, what? Like uh, this whole social media presence that he's got, hey, look how great I am for making the greatest artist of all time into what he was. Bit of a side question here, Taj, but I'm actually interested in the other co-executor, John McLean. We've heard nothing from him in 10 years yet from what we understand he had some involvement with michael you know in the late 80s and maybe early 90s and even produced some of the songs that have come out posthumously and in my opinion the songs that he's produced himself like um this is it love never felt so good behind the mask they're some of the most tasteful and best productions that we've seen posthumously have you had much to do with john mclean personally you mean recently or just in the past? Oh, just in general in the past. Like, have you had much to do with him? What's he like as a person? We, we know so little about him. Uh, um, you know, I haven't seen John in a while. And there's a lot of history with John and 3T. During the time period of our second album that never got released, uh, John McClain was trying to get 
our second album on DreamWorks. There's going to be a DreamWorks uh, music label. And so we had a lot of dealings with John in, in that way of trying to get our album off of Sony and onto DreamWorks. John, John was always, from what I've known in, in the past, and I'm going off of experience of what my dad's told me, John was a childhood friend, you know, my dad and him. And I think, I want to say Jermaine, but I'm not sure. They were the school photographers slash journalists in terms of they were responsible for the yearbook <laughs> pictures and stuff. So there's a lot of history with John McClane with the family. I unfortunately haven't seen or heard John in, in a while. I do know that he is someone that the artistic aspect, as you mentioned with the songs, always piques his interest and, and that's his wheelhouse. And so you see his names on certain things that are artistically like creative in that way. But um, I, I did meet with him at one point when I met with uh, John Branca for the executor thing. And so but he's he's not been anything but nice to me and, and friendly to me. So I have nothing, you know, to say in a negative thing about John McClain at all. I don't have enough experience to say any more because I haven't heard from him in a while. I just uh very interested by him. I'd I'd love to speak with him one day, actually. I'd love to interview him. Yeah. Yeah, he's been he's been very behind the scenes and I don't even I don't even know, you know, what uh the last time I probably talked to him was a good, I would say, 10 years ago. So mm. it's been a while for me as well. Yeah. So uh, continuing on the topic of estate projects, I wanted to bring up a new interview with Lynn Nottage. Now, of course, people, fans will know that she is the playwright of the MJ musical, which, you know, here at the MJ cast, we've kind of had a conflicted relationship with. It's taken us a long time to fully get on board, I will admit, with the Broadway show. But it's been fantastic to see that it's won a ton of awards. Everyone I know, I have not personally seen it. We're going to hear from Charlie in a minute who has seen it. Everyone I know who's seen it has only good things to say about it. Um, but there is this little seed of uncertainty that has kind of rooted with us and stayed with us since the initial announcements about this show. And that is with Lynn Nottage herself and how she really feels about Michael Jackson. Does she think he was guilty of the things he was charged? She has never made any sort of clear statement in support of him, but has made several rather troubling statements about potentially believing certain people who will go unnamed. And so this new interview has come out in the LA Times, where again, she really comes across as being very much on the fence. She says she is a huge Michael Jackson fan. His music was the soundtrack of her life, but then goes back into this kind of wishy-washy, not, you know, just not, not supporting him in the way that we would want someone who is so deeply involved in such what's become such an important project to support him. So, Jamin, I know that you had some notes in our in our shared notes for this topic. Would you like to start off here? Oh, I just had a quote from the article where yeah. she says, one of the things that you can't dismiss is that we all have a relationship with Michael Jackson, if you're a certain age, and we haven't all had the space or opportunity to process how we feel. That is why we created a piece of art in which people, regardless of what you believe, can come in and have a journey, whether that journey is to move deeper into your love or whether your journey is to release some of those emotions. We just wanted to create that space. 
And there's some other quotes in the interview as well, where she does pointedly sort of suggest that he may have been guilty. And I, I don't know. I just don't understand why. And, and, and we will talk later about the Thriller 40 documentary too and who directed that, Nelson George and some of the statements that Nelson's made about Michael over the years. But I just get deeply concerned as to why the Michael Jackson estate continues to partner with um, creative entities that publicly question Michael's innocence. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, could, I, I would be lying if I, if I said that you know i don't see these things and and when the broadway play when it was announced and then we found out who was writing it it was a very big concern for me and in that way cuz i also i don't want someone to profit or someone to get success off of thinking my uncle was guilty of something and still benefit uh there's plenty of, of people that know of his innocence that should be benefiting from that and so it is kind of co- conflicting for me because I've heard such incredible, and I haven't seen the Broadway play either, but I've heard such incredible things about it, and I know what it is doing for the public in that way. I just was on Twitter right before I came on here, and Kelly Rowland was basically saying, it, you you have to go see the Broadway play you know, if you haven't seen it already. And there's been tons and tons of people that have said that. So there, there there's a, a bunch of people that are reuniting with Michael in that way through this through this Broadway play it just it, it it I shouldn't say irks me but it just it's sad that someone that benefits from that is 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 the writer who is still on the fence which in itself is inexcusable to me I mean go do your research and homework you know don't especially if you're a writer mm. you know you should not be on, on the fence of anything the the facts are out there. And if and if she's over there researching Michael's life, she should be researching the truth. And so that in itself bothers me. Uh, that you, I mean, you could have been on the fence when it when in 2019, just because of just gut reaction, and here put a mic in front of someone's face and ask what their feeling is. But we're three years past that, and that those excuses are gone in that way. And you've had three years to to. Uh, discover the truth, learn the truth, or research the truth. So, and if that still hasn't been done, that's that's a choice at that point to me. I I do have to believe that everyone concerned with this production was told, like maybe actually by the estate, not to even comment on this particular issue because I have noticed that interviews with like everyone, um, the the. I'm forgetting his name, the guy who was originally supposed to be Michael, Miles Frost. Like any interviews I have seen, I have noticed that they do not comment on this particular issue. And maybe that was in order just to like to try to keep it away from this and allow for that just mainstream engagement and not make it this controversial, you know, thing. But I I, I think Lynn Nottage in particular has gone over too far on that other side where you know where she's not just not commenting on it but she's actually made problematic statements and yeah I agree it's just mystifying and troubling and I and she's such a great playwright I was a fan of hers before I'd seen plays she did you know before this and before I ever heard her make statements about this so now I'm not as much of a fan <laughs> and clearly she did a great job but um yeah it's just it's hard to get away from this I don't know yeah I just think it's it's about time that I mean, it's been three years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, going on four years. It's it, people need to be educated in that way, and there's no excuse. So I don't stand by. Oh, well, I do stand by what I said in terms of I think it's a choice at that point because the the information's been out there and it's very accessible. Especially if you're in the Michael universe, like she is. This is what I would expect her to say. Hey, look, you know, when I, I did an interview before, I didn't know all the facts, but you know, I've been doing, uh, I did some research for this play and I've done a lot of research since. And now I know he's innocent. And so, and I expect everyone else to do the same and enjoy the play because um, he's innocent. I think there's almost an element of it being like, it's a trap, isn't it? The media is setting a trap for her because- yeah, yeah. In the post-Me Too age, yeah, whatever she says is wrong. If she says that she believes the accusers, then she gets the Michael fans going bananas, and that's her audience, essentially, for um for her musical. So she's sabotaging her own musical. And if she says, mm-hmm. I don't believe the accusers, then, of course, there will be a tiki torch-wielding online lynch mob ready to demand the cancellation of her entire career and send letters to every theater that's staging one of her productions and say how can you stage a production by this victim blaming fascist you know so Mm -hmm. it's it's Mm a it's a climate at the moment where it's just lethal it's lethal it's like whatever direction you step in is a landmine and so she seems to be doing a uh, a type roping yeah exactly Wa- walking up. yeah <laughs> yeah it, but i mean that clearly that initial interview that she gave in 2019 she was suggesting she was on the side of the accusers and i've never heard her say that she was misquoted or anything like that i've never heard her say that journalist made that quote up i never said that i've never heard her retract it and that and that is why I was so hard on her in general because of that initial. If she was always type roping and always kind of like, I don't really want to comment and you know this, and I'm just leaving, then it would be one thing. But since she uh, felt the need to speak freely the fr- the first time and, and give her opinion, she needs to correct that now. Otherwise, the tight roping doesn't work for me anymore in that way because she's already made her opinion known. Mm, and, and not just her either. You've got people like Barbara Streisand and Louis Theroux who've said similar things. And you're just like, come on, guys, the facts are out there for you to yep. to actually look this up. It's just that your, I suppose, laziness to commenting on a topic that you don't know about is is always dangerous. Uh, well, it's also, it's, uh, Charles brought up a good point, though. It's also their career in that way. And it, it's character. Like some people will say, you know what? I don't care. I did my research, I did my homework, and this is what I know. And then others will be like, hey, I want a paycheck at the end of the of the month, and so I'm going to side with the side that is paying my bills. And so I've seen that a lot in the Hollywood, not as much in the music scene, because I think in the music scene, people are their own bosses, so they've been able to speak more freely. But in the, if you're tied to Hollywood in any way or that um, Hollywood crowd, you've been very much on the side of like, I, I have to lean... I can teeter, but I have to lean on the side of, well, we don't know, you know, kind of. That's like their safe answer. We don't know what happened, as opposed to being like, no, this didn't happen, and they're lying in that way. And so that's why I do respect the certain people that have been out front and said, no, this is a lie, and and you're not going to make me say any differently. I was speaking to a very successful musician a while ago who's in a 
a very successful band and they were saying that um their bandmates had pleaded with them literally pleaded with them don't put anything online defending michael please don't do it please don't do it because you'll kill all of our careers you'll destroy all of us um so there's pressure there is pre- even within the music industry there's pressure from people of know? course yeah but that's i mean and maybe that's just me you know what makes someone's character is when there is that pressure what do you do i sat there and watched michael in 2005 be abandoned by people and and because their agents because their um managers told them to stay away and I, the only people I have respect for are the people that said, no, I'm not going to do this. This person needs me because that's the easiest thing to do is stay away. But that's also the most harmful thing to do to someone, especially if you're their friend in that way. I'm not saying those bandmates were Michael's friends or, or not, but this is if you don't stand up for stuff, especially when you know it's, it's right, then it's like everyone will be silenced at one point or the other because it's, it becomes a mob of like, uh, and people are sheep in terms of like, hey, I don't want to go against the mob, so I'm just going to be quiet. It forced me to go against the mob, and I'm one of the most quiet people you know, but I also hate injustice. And I was going to take the arrows standing up straight, and I did because I was like, they're not going to do this to my uncle again. I already saw people hide in, in the caves and, and then come out after he passed and, and celebrate him like nothing was wrong in that way. And they weren't running during the trial. And I've kept those names secret, but I know those names. I know the people that I see now on social media praising Michael and all that stuff after they abandoned him. So it's just, it's, it's just hard in, in general to see that stuff as a family member and then, and know all the history behind it. Taj, does all of this with Lynn Nottage make you not want to see the show at all, or are you planning to see it? Oh, no, I would never not see a show just because of one person. The, what's made me not want to see the show is just I'm lazy and haven't gotten to <laughs> New York. <laughs> I mean, that's generally it in that way. I don't like to travel at all in that way. And if I traveled, I, I need it to be for work related mm-hmm. in that. And so that is it. That's the only reason I haven't seen it. If I was, if it was in LA, I would have seen it. If it was in Vegas, I would have seen it because those are places that I go to a lot and frequently. So it has nothing to do with Lynn at all. And so yeah, that's that's the literally the only reason that I haven't seen it as of yet. Well, it supposedly is going to start touring through North America, I think in mid-2023 or something, but I haven't seen dates, so I can't imagine it'll actually happen quite that soon, but we'll see. And yeah, and, and I met Miles Frost uh, during the Halloween nights, mm-hmm. uh, and he was amazing. He's he's an amazing person. Uh, I haven't even seen him perform, it, and I, I he had something about him that was very unique and and special. So I'm excited to support that and support him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he seems like a great guy. I'm so glad that he's the one who ended up in the show. Um, after all, he's just seems phenomenal. Everything I read about him and see about him, he seems to really um, carry Michael's spirit in him. So that's fantastic. And then, you know, on the more positive side, too, we were just talking a little bit ago about how do you hit that middle ground of the longtime fans and really get, you know, that catch the eye of those non-fans or the next generation of fans. And I do think that 
this show is absolutely a home run in terms of hitting that sweet spot. Everyone I hear who's seen it says that it's absolutely not just fans who are in attendance, that it's a lot a lot of people just kind of off the street who are, you know, mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. loving it too. So I think the estate's figured out the you know the right the right strategy here and i you know i think that's a good thing for sure and then speaking of that actually to for someone who's actually seen it charlie thompson has seen it in new york um charlie can you tell us a little bit about your experience and thoughts on the show yeah of course i mean uh, overwhelmingly it was positive although i do have some reservations about it so i saw it twice in new york I went to uh, an evening show and then a matinee show, saw Miles Frost in the evening. And I think the understudy's name is Aramy Payton. I saw the following day in the matinee. And it was interesting because they each brought different qualities to the role. Mm. Miles, in my opinion, was the better singer and dancer, but the, the other guy, Aramy, played Michael better, I felt. So basically the plot line is that they're in the studio rehearsing for the dangerous tour and there is a financial problem going on which is that the the business people involved in the tour are telling michael that the show is spiraling out of control and it's becoming incredibly expensive and that if he insists on staging the show in the way that he is proposing to then the tour is at massive risk of losing money instead of making money. And so Michael is having this crisis where he's having to deliberate over whether he should use Neverland. He should sign a contract which um, offers up Neverland as collateral if the tour loses money. Essentially, that's the backbone of the, of the musical. And then it kind of continually flashes backwards and forwards in time to try to draw a line between Michael's obsession as an adult with his show being the best and the most perfect thing that's ever happened and his childhood and how it was drilled into him as a child that everything had to be perfect. And so that, of course, sets up Joe Jackson as the foil. So Joe is portrayed as this kind of overbearing monster who beats the kids and tells them if you don't do everything perfect then i'm going to keep beating you and that michael is essentially wounded traumatized scarred as a child and left a source of emotionally crippled and obsessed for the rest of his life with making everything perfect all the time that's the backbone of of the show essentially and so you keep flicking between the present day, the studio in 92, putting together the Dangerous Tour and the past events and the device that they use to keep s- switching between these two is that they have this lady um, and her cameraman in there who are supposedly from MTV that are interviewing Michael about his life. And so he's telling them the stories and that's the device by which the, the play keeps going into flashback. And overwhelmingly, I did think it was very effective, albeit I'm pretty sure that the central plot line is not true. I've never heard of Michael putting Neverland up as collateral against the Dangerous Tour. I went into it expecting it to be a very happy, clappy, kind of almost like a jukebox musical. I I wasn't expecting much of it, to be honest. I thought it would be a bit superficial. But actually, it was surprisingly dark, surprisingly gritty. It did not shy away from um, exploring, you know, the the troubles that Michael had. 
and in fact put them front and centre and essentially they were the focus of the entire show. Because of course when the London run was announced a while ago, the first thing that happened was some ninny wrote a think piece for one of the UK papers saying, what's the point of a Michael Jackson stage show that ignores all of his demons or something like that. Of course, they've never seen it. If they had seen it, they would have known that that's not true. However, I do have some reservations about it. The first is that it's, of course, it's not entirely accurate. There are things that are happening that never happened or that are happening in the wrong time. And as is often the case with things that are officially sanctioned by Michael's estate, there is uh, certainly an element of the plot which amounts to an attack on the Jackson family. So Joe Jackson, of course, I mean, Michael criticized Joe himself for his heavy handed parenting and so on. But part of the thread of the show, sorry for all the spoilers, by the way, but part of the thread of the show is that Michael is obsessed by the idea that the victory tour was a pile of shit and he, he can't the dangerous tour must not under any circumstances be allowed to be as terrible as the victory tour was. And so what they do is they have this moment in the show where Michael's hair catches fire and then he's in the hospital having been burned and you're in the corridor of the hospital and Joe Jackson is having a conversation with the doctor and says words to the effect of, I don't care what you have to pump him with, just give him whatever he needs to get him on stage for the victory tour. So essentially they have they wind up blaming Joe Jackson for Michael's drug dependency. Mm. And in the musical, Michael is dependent on drugs in 1992 in the rehearsal studio for Dangerous, which of course is not true. So they keep showing him taking pills. And uh, that's all laid at Joe Jackson's feet. That's that's all Joe's fault. And then the other thing is that there's actually a scene in the Victory Tour rehearsals where Michael is um, having to keep taking pills because he's in so much pain. And there's actually some dialogue between him and the brothers where they're all essentially saying, oh, I don't know why you put so much effort into the shows. You should just phone it in like we all do. So it's so the there is a whole element of the show which just amounts to an attack on the Jackson family, which I was not comfortable with. However, if you put that to one side, which of course, if you were Taj, for example, that might be very difficult to put to one side because it's essentially an attack on your own father. But if you were to remove that element from the show, then the rest of it is actually very good. It's just kind of marred by that somewhat unnecessary subplot which is actually completely fictitious on the plus side miles frost amazing extremely good singer extremely good dancer in fact there's one scene towards the very end of the show he's kind of be a spoiler alert but he's kind of being like thrown around like a marionette puppet by a big demonic joe jackson and he was kind of like flinging, being flung across the stage and then springing back up to his feet. It was amazing. I'm no, I just don't know how he did it. it. It looked like he was on wires, but he wasn't. He's exceptionally talented. The audience, yeah, not not a fan audience. It was very much a general theatre goer audience. People loved it. Standing ovation both times that I went and it's going down very well with audiences and a packed house both times as well. I'd say it's worth going to see as a fan. 
but there are things in it that are probably going to aggravate you as a fan, which if you weren't a fan, if you were just a general member of the public, would probably wash over you and wouldn't be too much of, a, of an issue. It's only for people like us that know the ins and outs of Michael's life that these things become aggravating. So yeah, that's my kind of part review. Mm, interesting. Thank you, Charlie. That's amazing. Um, very well articulated. I haven't seen it. And I guess I would like to one day, but something that's always concerned me were those early reviews that we got sent at the MJ cast where fans who had gone to see it. And we spoke about this last year, I think, on last year's Christmas episode. Mm -hmm. Yep. But some of those early reviews from the fans talked about things like Michael's own art, his own songs being repurposed to make statements that they weren't intended to. Like, for example, the I think an example that was given was that there was a scene where Joe Jackson was like beating Michael with a belt or something to the the song Money from the History album, which obviously is nothing that, to do yeah, with that. Yeah, if, if that was in the show, it's been removed. Okay. It wasn't in the show when I saw it. However, there is a scene where the family are all harassing Michael to do the victory tour. Michael says, why would I want to do that when um, I've got the number one album in the world and I could go on tour for that? And then Joe starts singing, not Michael's song, Money, but some, you know, the song, Money, 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 Money. I don't know who sings that. But anyway, so Joe, Joe just starts singing that song and then it kind of morphs into Michael's money, I think. So money is in there and it's still used in a negative context about the family, but there's not a scene where Michael is being beaten. To, and it sounds like the scenes where Michael was being beaten have been watered down because compared to the early reviews that we received, what was included in the show when I went both times was actually very tame. Very, very tame. A single scene where Joe kind of pushes Michael over, sort of shoves him and he falls over. That was about it. So it does sound like that aspect of the show has been altered since it first opened. Which is not unusual, is it, for plays to evolve over time? No, no, particularly if it opened in previews. Because I think it was open in previews for about a month before the official opening night. So that's not unusual. And it may have been due to a request. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know who went. Who went to Taj? Did Pr Prince went, didn't he? I think it was a mixture of just different family members seeing it and requesting changes in there due to accuracy or due to tone. I, I know the brothers went as well, and that was one of the things that they had a concern with. Mm, I would suggest that maybe everything that they weren't happy with has not been removed because... Oh, I'm sure not. Yeah. That, yeah so some of that stuff in there is very bad about, you know, like essentially the scene, I was quite shocked by the scene where they were all in the victory rehearsals and they were basically saying, oh, you're an idiot for putting so much effort into the shows. You should just phone it in like we do. I don't think they use the phrase phone it in, but it's, it's words to that effect. You know, I don't, don't know why you bother putting so much effort in. Yeah. We don't. Something like that. Which is, which is for me, like, if you see the footage of the Victory Tour, they definitely didn't do that. Like, that's what's so crazy about, like, it's words versus your own eyes. But most people haven't seen the Victory Tour or footage of it since. But I can tell you just the footage that I've seen, and I'm not saying the footage from, like, I've seen, I'm privy to any footage. But just online footage that I've seen, like, you freaking see 
Marlon sweating the storm as he's dancing. You see my dad, you know, they're, they're all there doing what they needed to do. And I don't think any of them ever phoned in any performance. No. Ever. And, and you know, my, there's a line in the show where Michael says, I can't ever let my fans down again the way that I did with the Victory Tour. That's something ridiculous. like that. Yeah. Whereas, as we all know, the Victory Tour was, an, uh, you know, it was one of the most, the biggest, most successful and most critically acclaimed yeah. tours in history. I think it still owns a record in America for the no most number of consecutive shows in a stadium. Yeah. Well, I think what the problem with the Victory Tour, from what I remember, was that because the tickets were $30, like right when it was announced and whatever, the news, the local news channels would go around poor neighborhoods and they would interview these families that were lifelong Jackson fans and they would be on TV crying how they cannot go to this victory tour because it's too expensive. Like, how am I supposed to, you know, get my family to this concert? Uh, I have four people and that's $120. Mm. And I'm not saying at that time there probably was concern, but I'm just saying that that's what the negative news was going around doing was interviewing these people. So I know that my uncle was one of those people like, well, I'm not doing it for the money, so I'm going to donate it all because I don't want that narrative on me. But at the same time, the Victory Tour was a concert like no other concert where cost-wise, it was a, an expensive concert. And the lighting and the theatrics, people, anyone that saw the concert knew why it was expensive. But you got to remember back then, and there were other artists that weren't doing nearly half of that and putting on half a show like that. They would just be there with their instrument and performing yeah. to a piano or to a guitar. So what the Jacksons and the, and the family brought was an experience. And it's hard when you're the first person or the first family to do that to, to say, hey, this is going to be worth it. Trust us. Here's the experience you're going to get. But at the same time, you know, that, that negative press was one of the th deciding factors. So when you say, like, I don't want it to be a disaster like the Victor Tour was, I think it was the whole Don King fiasco of the tickets being too expensive and bad promotion on certain things in that way that was kind of the business side of the Victory Tour, I think, was or the business dealings on that side was probably the fiasco. I can tell you the performance aspect and the family aspect was never the fiasco. Yeah, which is not the narrative in the in the musical. Yeah. In the musical, of he's, yeah. he's yeah. basically saying, this show has to be amazing because the Victory Tour was so terrible and I can't do it to my fans again, which is, as Jamin said, is just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I think if or when the Victory Tour concert comes out, if there is one that can come out, I think people will understand that that's not the truth of it. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that shortly when we discuss the Thriller 40 documentary, which Charlie, you've also seen, both Charlies have seen. I just want to make that note though, also on the on the uh, musical, that if there is in fact no redemption story for Joe Jackson in the musical, that that in itself has just turned me off to wanting to see anything to do with it because it's so historically inaccurate. Michael Jackson at his Oxford speech you know, in the early 2000s, talked about forgiving his father. Who was there at the trial holding his son's hand as they walked into the courtroom? Joe Jackson. 
Jermaine Jackson talks about in his book, he quotes Michael on stage at This Is It rehearsals saying, if Joe Jackson was here, this wouldn't be happening. You know, there was forgiveness and redemption, and that bothers me that that story, that that's not included in the, in the, in the play. Yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot of people, yeah, I mean, you did your homework and, and a lot of the fans have, but a lot of the public isn't privy to that redemption story, isn't privy to how my uncle felt about his dad later on in life and how much of an effort even with his uh with Michael's own kids how he wanted Joe to be a, a huge part of it like they the kids knew Joe the kids were around Joe a lot in that way and so i think from my perspective and especially and i know we'll talk about this a little later but it's important for me to be as someone that was around and also in this family to carry that torch for Joe and make sure that he isn't just painted as a villain, but also a genius and also someone that later on in life realized his faults and also was forgiven for his faults. I can tell you one of the hardest things for me was seeing him at the hospice and seeing the whole family there. Uh, Jermaine wasn't there because he was overseas, but the whole family was there for their dad. And that was such a sight for me to see and out of respect and love. And so that is, I will always carry that with me. And I will always carry that pride and that memory with me that, you know, if he was such a monster, no one would have showed up. They would have let him die by himself. They were all there, everyone, to to honor this man and at his funeral as well to honor him and to thank him for what he had done because none of them would have been there without Joe Jackson. Absolutely. Well, maybe maybe time will eventually be kinder to him. I, I think it's easy for people to hate on him to create a certain narrative they want and hard to say if that will change, but I do hope it does over time. It's going to take family. Yeah. It, just like Janet said in, in her docuseries, you know, she was very uh, much giving her father props for yes she there's no secret how hard he was on them but she definitely gave him his props and and his respect in terms of that she wouldn't have been who she was if it wasn't for him so i think it's just going to come from people that stand up that were close to him or family members changing the narrative and correcting you know, the lies that are out there about him in that way. I shouldn't say the lies, just the one-sided narrative. It's almost like a narrative that's been carried over and it's it's half of his life, but it's not the latter part of his life. And it's not what I knew. Yes, my grandfather was intimidating, but my grandfather was always great to us, me and my brothers. And my dad would always say, you should have seen him back then, son, you know, like that. But so when we would say, oh, grandfather's not that, you know, that not that scary and all that stuff. But it was just, that's just, he was intimidating. He loved that. And he loved to play off of that. And then he would smile and laugh if he knew that he intimidated you. So there's a game aspect to it too. So moving on to our next topic, which is also related to someone the estate has hired to work on a really important project who has maybe not been so kind to Michael Jackson in the past. Uh, We have Nelson George's 
Thriller 40 documentary, which has been announced, and then which also as part of the Thriller 40 events this past month was shown in a an unfinished, you know, admittedly, I guess, draft form at several different fan events around the world. So I know both of our Charlies have seen this, and you definitely want to refer to our Thriller 40 episode for most of Carter's comments. But I would like to start with Charlie Thompson um, to let us know a little bit about how that fan event went and your thoughts on seeing this unfinished documentary on Thriller. Yes, it's obviously it's hard to comment not knowing how unfinished it is. Obviously, when it was um, announced, they just said it was a screening of the documentary. And then at some point after everybody booked their tickets, they changed the description and said it was an unfinished version of the documentary. So I don't know what that means, whether it was a deadline that was missed or something. I saw, I went to the London screening at the Curzon Soho, uh, which was maybe two thirds full. And I mean, of course, most of the audience was, so if not all of the audience, apart from the invited Sony guests, were um, very enthusiastic Michael Jackson fans, many of whom had shown up dressed as Michael Jackson. And so, I mean, you put those people in a room and then put Michael on the screen and you're not going to get a bad review of them. But, I mean, I've tried to watch it with a critical but objective eye. It seemed to me that you had most of the ingredients that you would need to put together a great documentary about Thriller, but somehow it added up to less than the sum of its parts. Is The first problem with it was that right out of the gate, it's just very nebulous. It doesn't really have any kind of mission statement. So the beginning of the documentary is just quite a protracted sort of montage of archive clips of Michael in music videos or on stage with celebrities popping up going, oh, Michael was brilliant. So as a non-fan, there would be nothing there to engage you at all, especially if you were someone that maybe harbored some skepticism towards Michael. You'd be going, oh, this just looks like a puff piece. I think I'll switch channels. There was nothing about it which said, you know, Thriller has been the biggest selling album in the world for the last 40 years. Let's investigate why that is, what made it the most successful album in history, and why is it endured. There was nothing that set up what the mission statement of the documentary was supposed to be. It just kind of felt like a weird kind of fan-edited montage. It definitely felt less cinematic than Spike Lee's documentary. I wasn't necessarily a big fan of the Spike Lee documentaries either, but this felt very much televisual as opposed to cinematic is filled with unseen footage. So you have footage of Michael in the studio recording the album that's never been seen. You have behind the scenes footage from the music videos. You have footage of Michael being interviewed, which has never been seen. There's a lot in there, which is brand new. Lots of uh, very good quality victory tour footage. However, as I say, most of the fans in the room you stick them in a in a cinema and put unseen footage of Michael on the screen. They're going to whoop and cheer and go, yeah, this is brilliant. But, you know, looking at it as a journalist, trying to put my journalist hat on and say, is this a good documentary? I just came away from it thinking, no, it's shapeless, it's nebulous. It has no narrative structure, really. I mean, the longer it goes on, the more it sort of develops a narrative structure. But 
it takes a long time to start doing that. Um, it's filled with tangents that don't need to be in there. There's quite a lengthy tangent all about the E.T. storybook, which is just completely irrelevant, didn't need to be in there. You get halfway through the documentary, and then for no apparent reason, somebody from TikTok appears on the screen and says oh, how many billions of views Michael's music has had on TikTok. But it's just in the middle of the doc. You could understand if that was at the end. If at the end of the documentary they were saying, and 40 years on, the legacy endures, here's somebody from TikTok, but you're just in the middle of this documentary about the making of Thriller. And then for apropos of nothing, just for no discernible reason whatsoever, Joe Bloggs from TikTok comes on screen and starts talking about <laughs> TikTok for about, it was almost felt like a an advertorial had just been inserted into the middle of the documentary. It's very bizarre. So, I mean, it has its problems, of course. Another one of the problems is that it is um, essentially amounts to another attack on the Jackson family. Again, um, no Jackson family members are interviewed for the documentary. And the discussion of the Victory Tour is basically all about how nobody was interested in seeing the brothers. Everybody that bought a ticket was only interested in seeing Michael perform songs from Thriller. He was bullied into doing the Victory Tour. He didn't want to do it. You know, the same old uh, Victory Tour narrative. There's some notable omissions. Vince Patterson is not interviewed. No family members are interviewed. Ola Ray is not interviewed. Quincy is not interviewed. Of course, other people are not interviewed. Was Howard Bloom in there? No. No Howard Bloom. So there are, there are quite a lot of people who are alive and kicking and would have been good to interview and are not in it. And instead, you have interviews with like, there's one section, again, like I was saying, there's these weird diversions. There's an interview with the rapper. Do you remember last year on the Christmas episode, you were asking me if I'd seen a video by a rapper who did like a two-minute song based on Smooth Criminal. Oh. oh, Polo G. Polo G. He's in there. He's interviewed talking all about <laughs> Smooth Criminal. And you're going, this is a documentary about Thriller. Why is Polo G <laughs> being interviewed about Smooth Criminal? So and there's people Jonathan that Moffitt. are quite... Yeah, there's, there's people that are quite integral to the era that are not interviewed. And then you have these very bizarre creative decisions that have been taken to interview people that have no relevance whatsoever. And Polo G was a particularly odd one because he's not, it's not even like he's on there saying, oh yeah, I made a song out of Thriller or I made a song out of Billie Jean. It's, it's smooth criminal. So what <laughs> on earth is the relevance? It's so bizarre. Um, and the other thing that was really noticeable actually was that some of the archive is appalling quality. So, like at one point they're playing the Don't Stop Till You Get Enough music video. It looks like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a VHS. It's so poor, the quality. And you're going, how is a, a Michael Jackson estate product presenting his work in quality this bad? It doesn't make any sense at all. It is, I would say in the form that I saw it in, it was probably somewhere between a 6 and a 7 out of 10 and with some good editing, with a bit of extra narrative structure, which wouldn't be too difficult to insert, you could probably up it to somewhere between an eight and a nine. But will that happen? I don't know. I just don't know. There's certainly things that need to be chopped out of it because they're irrelevant. 
And the, the structure of it could be fixed relatively easily by having a narration, some kind of thing on the beginning that says 40 years why is it, let's investigate why what made it a hit and why it endured but at the moment it just feels like a sizzle reel that at some point after about 15 minutes turns into a documentary it's very strange and then of course you've got the lingering concerns that many fans have about the choice of director Nelson George previous the previous two documentaries the bad and off the wall documentaries were made by spike lee who had publicly expressed an interest in making the thriller documentary he said in an interview with rolling stone words to the effect of i can't wait to make the thriller documentary because i'm going to jam my air jordan straight up mtv's ass something like that and for reasons which are hitherto unexplained Spike Lee has not been at the helm of the thriller documentary and he's been replaced, not only replaced, but replaced by Nelson George, who has a long history of um, being extremely negative or uncharitable towards Michael in his journalism. So yeah, that's that's a concern as well. It's a bit like the Lynn Nottage dilemma, you know, why, why Nelson George? It's interesting because all the way through the documentary, you keep seeing Nelson George's articles about Michael pop up with Nelson George written on them as well. So it's slightly egomaniacal. Anyway, yeah, Charlie, what did you think? I mean, I wasn't on the Thriller roundtable, the Thriller 40 roundtable. Yeah, I mean, I won't go over every point that we did on there, but I'll, I'll try and sort of do it in a nutshell. And I can't disagree with a lot of what you've said there in that there were things just sort of randomly put in there and there didn't seem to be a cohesive order. Obviously, we've got to remember that this was still in the draft phase, although, you know, generally speaking, it is going to broadly be what we eventually see as the final product. The takeaways that I had for it, uh, you mentioned there about it feeling a bit more like a televisual program rather than a cinematic. My thinking behind that is that I don't know if it is going to go out into cinemas and theatres around the world, but they are looking for a streaming platform for it. I don't know if they've secured that yet. Or, or indeed announced it. So I can sort of understand that. I sort of disagree with what you said about the ET storybook and its relevance, just purely because that is something that was going on at around that time. And it adds a little bit of context to some of the wider work that Michael was doing at the time. But there are emissions like they go through some of the songs on the, well, most of the songs on the album. My disappointment is they didn't spend long enough on human nature because you've got people like Steve Piccaro who are on record saying how that song came to be and how that song ended up in the hands of Michael Jackson. And that story is a great story. So to include that on the documentary about the 40th anniversary of this monumental album, I think would have been great. And and to have it you know, all together in one place with the stories of the other songs. There was obviously some highlights, things we haven't seen before, like in-studio footage of Michael and Paul McCartney recording The Girl Is Mine. There's what looks like good quality, high quality footage from the Victory Tour. Overall, I quite liked the documentary. I enjoyed it for what it was. When you look at things with a wider context, the Nelson George aspect of it, you know, you, you can sort of go around in circles asking questions about potential negative influences on on Michael's legacy being involved in a positive production. But underneath it all, it is a positive production. It is underlining the genius of Michael Jackson. And I think that that's the important takeaway when it comes to his legacy. I agree with you on that front. My concern is that in the current format, 
if I was not a fan, I would have switched it off. That that was how yeah, I felt okay. watching it, was that there was no narrative hook, which if you were not just a, a huge Michael Jackson fan who's excited by seeing footage that you've never seen before, then what was the hook? And to me, it yeah. felt like it had no narrative purpose, no shape, no structure. It just felt like a montage of footage, which was somewhat directionless. You're right, though. That was another thing I forgot, was that eventually it did attain a sort of shape, which was that it was following the single releases from the album, broadly speaking. It was sort of mm. started with The Girl Is Mine, and then you got to Thriller and the, out, the record label saying, you're insane, don't make the music video, it costs too much money. <laughs> and then there were a couple of songs that then just never got addressed at all. I think it was PYT and Lady In My Life. They just never even got mentioned. Um, yeah, Lady In My Life was sort of brushed over very briefly, and you're right, I don't remember PYT being mentioned at all. Yeah, strange, strange decisions. See, for for me, uh, that's it. that goes to the point I said earlier. Like, who's the audience? As a fan, I would have loved to hear stories about PYT and Lady My Life. But, and I haven't seen the documentary. But you know, when people think of Thriller, I mean, yeah, people do think of PYT a lot. But I think that's more on the dance floor. But you think of Beat It, you think of Billie Jean, you think of Thriller, and maybe Girl Is Mine because it was Paul McCartney mm. in that way. And so I feel like they did the commercial version of like, hey, here's the songs that everyone knows. Here's the songs that are big on Spotify and blah, blah, blah. And that's what we're going to focus on. Um, my One of my favorite songs is Human Nature. So I, I think that's a travesty that they didn't yeah, go into likewise. that. But I can also say that that song wasn't a number one song of Michael's either. You know, so it's like, do you cater towards the number one songs or you cater towards the songs that have lived past? Like, I feel that Human Nature is a more important song than Girl Is Mine, yes. in in my opinion. And a, oh, I was going to say a better song. Actually, okay, for me, it's a better, it's a better song, song in that. I'll it's just say it's a better song. I don't know why that's controversial. <laughs> I, 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 I would have taken Hot Street over the girl's mind. Just yeah, <laughs> like so, you know, like Human Nature is just it has a soft spot in my heart. Mm. Just even watching my uncle perform that on stage, it's like it was one of my favorite songs to watch him do. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the thing. It's just okay, we're trying to reach a broad audience here. Let's do the songs that they know. But then, Charles, you're right. If it doesn't have a hook, those people aren't even a aren't going to watch it anyway, or they're going to turn it off five minutes in. And so that's that's the concern for me. But I haven't seen it. I'm so glad that you said that Human Nature is up there as one of your favorite songs because that's something that we have in common. It's definitely in my top three. And I think I've been on record on the show before saying that the the version that was put out on the This Is It movie, as much as there's a lot of controversy around that movie, that's one of my favorite versions of that song is just so soulful and melodic and it just draws you in. And that's why I wanted them to expand on that particular song. Mm -hmm. um, but what that documentary did do around The Girl Is Mine and probably why they focused on it is they sort of focused on Michael's intelligence when it came to marketing himself and how he, in order to cross over to a quote-unquote white audience, he would attach himself to, quote, unquote, white musical figures, such as Paul McCartney. Okay, that's a way to get this whole thing going. Who's the, the most famous white guitarist of the time? Eddie Van Halen. Okay, let's get him in on Beat It. So they sort of 
probably focused on that side of the promotion rather than the song The Girl Is Mine itself. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. It sounds like the whole narrative aspect of it, Charlie, that you were talking about being lacking at the start, Marcos Kubota's Sonic Fantasy comes to mind with nailing that aspect, how mm. he was talking about, you know, the record label, the record industry being in dire straits and the video game industry had come and sort of overtaken it and there was a mission uh, between, you know, Bruce Wadeen, Quincy Jones, Matt Forger and, and Michael to, to you know, um, save the industry. And I thought that was a really excellent narrative to start it off with. Yeah, and that that's not really mentioned at all in this uh, estate documentary. And the other thing that Marcos's documentary did better was interviewing people that actually worked on the album. I mean, there's a bit of that in the estate documentary. Matt Forger is in it and a couple of other people are in it, but they're in it very briefly. That at one point they even interview they interview some guy that's that wasn't in the studio. That's one of the most baffling moments in the whole documentary. I mean, I view things differently as a journalist, I'm, of course. Yeah, of course. So <laughs> I'm noticing things that are happening and going, why on earth have they done that? But they interview this guy who didn't even work on the album, but just worked somewhere else in the Quincy Jones sphere and so his contribution to the documentary is they've wasted a whole day presumably filming this guy and he says um yeah i remember that the guys that were working on thriller they would come out of the studio and they'd say wow is really cooking in there something like that it's like why why have you filmed this guy what's the what what was the point of that that's probably cost a thousand dollars or something (laughs) and then they have interviewed Forger. That's time they could have given to Forger, but he's not. But they've not. They've interviewed some guy that wasn't even fucking there. So it's, it just doesn't. There's a lot of it that doesn't make any sense. You can't really understand the decisions behind what has and has not been included. So that bothers me as somebody that is involved in not in television. I don't work in television, but is involved in storytelling and structuring stories. I'm just sort of dismantling it as it's happening, going, what? why have you interviewed that guy? What was the purpose of that? doesn't make any sense. So why is Polo G here? That's, <laughs> another, that's another, that's two minutes you could have spent with Matt Forger or somebody that was in the studio working on the thing. Instead, you've not, you've stuck this guy in talking, but not even talking about the thriller. What the fuck? So it is a very eccentric the the version <laughs> the version that we've seen the work in progress was eccentric i thought in a lot of its decision making it'll be interesting to see what is or is not changed before it comes out you felt like it felt like a state interference that was what it felt like i mean that's purely speculation on my part but the tiktok thing it just felt like crowbarred in to demonstrate that the estate has made a brilliant decision to let Michael's music go on TikTok. That just felt like what that was. It was like a piece of propaganda, which it did not in any way serve the narrative of the documentary, certainly not in the position that it was in. And it's just been, it was almost like it had been crowbarred in, bore no relevance to anything which preceded it or succeeded it. It was just an island in the middle of the documentary, which was irrelevant to everything around it. It felt like Nelson George was uh, not a director in control of his own film. That was the uh, impression that I got. And it was a similar impression I got actually from Spike Lee's documentaries when we watched those. 
for example, in the Bad 25 documentary in the middle of it, for absolutely no reason whatsoever. There's some guy just telling a story about how terrible the Jackson family are. Uh, apropos of nothing, bears no relation to anything which precedes it or succeeds it. It's just crowbarred in just for no reason. So yeah, it felt like a... It felt it felt like uh, Nelson George was not wearing the trousers. Well, and I think we have to remember too, and we've said it before in the show that a documentary, as you mentioned, Jamin, a documentary about thriller, very specific about the journey of the thriller album, exists, and the estate would not give permission for Marcos Cabota to mm-hmm. include the music of Michael Jackson in that film, which kind of destroyed it. I mean. I think it will it's such a it's a really good film and I think it will rise above that but it's it's hard to watch it without the music. They have that while this they have hired this problematic person and interviewed a bunch of people who don't matter. It's just continues to completely baffle me. Yeah, all they had to do was say, "Cool, hey, hey Marcos, you've got a ready-made amazing documentary about thriller. It's there. Uh, here's yeah. all the footage. Here's the girl is mine. Here's the victory tour. Here's you know demo tracks of the songs and things people haven't heard before. Uh, we can line you up to talk to even more people that knew Michael Jackson during this era. You make the Thriller Forty documentary. Like what? What's the deal? Why was that not done? Yeah, if you combined Marcos's interviews." with the estate's archive, you would have a damn near perfect documentary. But alas, the estates, it's just shapeless. You know, even if you took Marcos's mission statement, I think that would hook non-fans. If you said Thriller, it's Thriller became the biggest selling album of all time when it was released. And 40 years later, it's never lost that mantle. We're going to tell you the story of how that happened. And it's because Michael Jackson and his team didn't set out to make just make the biggest selling album of all time. They set out to save the record industry. That's a great hook. That's something that a non-fan would be going, oh, that, that's interesting. Not really a Michael Jackson fan, but I wonder how they did that. I'm interested in the building blocks of how that happened. But there's just no hook to it. There's no hook to this documentary. You could easily transpose Marcos's hook and all of the estate's archive and a couple of their interviews, if you wanted them, if you want Usher for some reason or whatever, or Will I Am or Brooke Shields, transpose those in, but use the shape of Marcos's documentary. Each has something that the other doesn't have. <clears throat> and if you could meld them together, it would be brilliant. Missed opportunity by the estate, real bad missed opportunity. And and lucky we've got friend of the show, Damien Shields, the genesis of Thriller audio documentary on podcast platforms, which is probably better than all of these things combined anyway. So <laughs> it's true. I've listened to that a number of times, Taj. I'm not sure if you've you've heard that before. Damien's The Genesis of Thriller is a fantastic record of how the album was put together. I haven't heard the whole thing, but I've heard people's response to it and it's been amazing so um and i know damien does incredible stuff anyway so i was lucky enough to meet him for the first time we'll get on to this when we get to our our personal updates in the year about the the number of people from the michael jackson community that i've managed to meet in the last 12 months or so uh but i actually picked damien up from the airport and we went to this documentary together and just a, a funny little thing that happened is we were sitting on our side of the theatre, uh, a couple of people had come up that Damien knew and said hello. 
And then at one point after a friend left, the guy behind said, excuse me, is your name Damien? And he said, yes. He said, is your surname Shields? And he said, yes. And I was expecting this bloke to say, oh, I heard your podcast or I've read your book or whatever it is. No, no. The next words out of his mouth were, oh, I'm your cousin. (laughs) And it turned out to be his cousin that he hadn't seen for years and years and years. Wow. What are the odds of that? Interesting story. Yeah. MJ brings us all together. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And it was interesting to me as well, the limited number of places that they decided to show this documentary. And in Australia, Sydney being the only location. So if anyone uh, from the MJ community wanted to see that in Australia, they had to come here to Sydney. I mean, great for me. I live here. Um, And obviously for Charlie going to London, that was one of the the places as as well. I was surprised that so few locations were actually given this preview. Yeah, and equally, actually, considering the tickets were free, I was surprised at how empty the London screening was. There were quite a lot of empty seats in London. I don't know what that means necessarily. Well, in LA, the information on it was really bad. I was going to try to go, but for me in San Diego, getting to LA on a weeknight can be kind of a nightmare. So when they sent out the notice about it, there was like, they they, they wouldn't say where it was. And then the information kept changing. It wasn't very well organized. So I think there was a lot of confusion as well around it. And just to finish off this section, I guess we'll just touch base a little bit about uh, Nelson George and his history, because where we were talking about Lynn Nottage being a little bit on the fence about Michael, uh, Nelson George is quite a ways over the fence. He's jumped off the fence and just run into the paddock as as far as he could. He has said some pretty outlandish things about Michael. I've got a couple of quotes here that I want to read. Okay, so this is one article he wrote a few years ago. It's hilarious how one-sided much of the immediate commentary about the man has been, sinner or saint. More apt is artist and sinner. People want to simplify a truly complex life. We have to be sophisticated enough to acknowledge that greatness and a touch of evil dwelled in the man. I've always believed that transcendent art emanates from the purest, most evolved parts of our soul. But that highly spiritual achievement doesn't absolve us of our daily misdeeds. To simply brand him a smooth criminal, as some have or to overlook his tragic nature, as have others, is to deny his humanity. The meaning of Michael Jackson's life as a black man, a sexual being, a abused and abusing adult, will be interpreted to fit the prejudices of the speaker. His music, it speaks volumes. And then another one that came out a little while later in The Guardian says, Though clearly a little eccentric, Michael, with his breathy voice and childish interest, didn't seem as weird as, say, Prince. A little over 20 years after the triumph of Thriller and now approaching middle age, Michael looks nothing like the little boy I admired. His skin is pale and chalky. He wears bizarre outfits, although he won't go to jail for any of the 10 counts of child molestation or child endangerment he was on trial for. His life and career will remain tainted. His fascination with young boys, young white boys, is still disquieting. The details of his personal life unearthed during the trial will shadow him for the rest of his life. I had emotionally disconnected from Michael over the years as his skin tone lightened and his public persona darkened. I'm not alone in that. While black Americans are usually quite loyal to our tainted stars, C.O.J. and Mike Tyson, support for Michael seems more muted. I suspect this is as much because of his ongoing loss of pigment as for the crimes he's been accused of. 
none of his explanations for how he grew lighter have been very convincing. It is one thing to have a white district attorney target you. Black people understand that game. It is another when you seem, and I use seem since there's no hard evidence for this, to have willfully tried to de-black yourself. So these are the quotes of the director the estate have hired to make the Thriller 40 documentary. And even just on the face of it, it's easy to sort of go through and basically sentence by sentence say why that is wrong. So it's it's an interesting decision to go with him over someone who's clearly pro-Michael Jackson and has experience in making documentaries such as Spike Lee. And these are all articles that are actively online. They have not been taken down. It's crazy. And they come up right when you Google him. I mean, it's just, I, it's. Uh. And there's heaps of them. There's, it's not like he's written one yeah. article about it. He's written like maybe a dozen or more, mm-hmm. all saying these kind of things. I, I just find it shocking. And and this is one of the reasons I actually want to talk to him. He'll probably never talk to us now if, <laughs> if he listens to this episode, but I would love to just straight up ask Nelson George, how can you insinuate that Michael Jackson is a pedophile or intentionally tried to lighten his skin when there's so much evidence to the contrary? I think Nelson George also, he vowed when the Casio tracks were released in 2010, certain fans messaged him on Twitter and implored him to investigate. And he said that he would. The tweets are still online. He said, I'll look into it. And then he was next seen at um, a party being thrown by the MJ estate, (laughs) posing for official pictures at an estate event somewhere. I forget what it was for now, but it was just like, oh, you know, this is the guy that's uh, that's supposed to be in the middle of his investigation into the Casio tracks. And here he is at some party that's being thrown by the estate. You couldn't make it up, you know, so he's uh, he's an interesting character. He reminds me a bit of Roger Friedman, who sort of just veers wildly between being pro-Michael and anti-Michael, depending on who spoke to him last, sort of Trump-esque. Very strange. Why would you be going to Michael Jackson estate events if you think that he's a child molester? It's very peculiar. Well, Taj, I mean... You know, um, you've not said anything, but how does it feel to hear these quotes from Nelson George and then know that um, the estate is paying him to work on projects? Well, I'm going off of what, when originally on Twitter, I found out and the quotes were there and, and all that. And it's there, there's a, obviously disappointment, especially since there's hundreds to thousands of directors that would jump at an opportunity to do a Michael Jackson documentary, especially thriller. I don't know. I just, I, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, we talked about this earlier. It's just hard for me to get excited about someone benefiting off of, uh, off a project when they have that circling around for me, the first prerequisite to hiring someone would be making him, do an article or something saying that he well first educating him and then making him do an article explaining that he got it wrong and that he's now learned the truth and hopefully he's done the research to to have done that but i don't like when it's just floated around and and there's no apology there's no you know we have these quotes but there's nothing to say hey i was wrong they just get rewarded anyway and so 
I don't like someone winning off of my uncle losing, if that makes sense. There's enough, and why reward enemies? I'm, I'm not being so vicious as I could be only because I've tried to be nicer. <laughs> i'm trying you know um in that way and just detach just learning that you know there's just people that are going to be ignorant there's just people that are that want my uncle to be guilty that have i don't know ultimatums just like another artist better so they're just going to pick on my uncle and they're going to just uh ram that those lies down people's throats just because they can. I mean, obviously the quotes that he was saying that we just took from what he had said in his articles and stuff like that, a lot of them are so easily provable false that it just que- I question when someone's considered a journalist and you can do a, a two second search and realize that a lot of that isn't true. So it's like, I think as a journalist, you should go back and say, Either take your stuff off the uh, off the internet because it's not relevant anymore and it's not true anymore, or make corrections to it and say this is what I thought, but it's it's now been shown that Michael Jackson had had vitiligo, and you know blah 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 blah. And here's what vitiligo is, but just to leave it up there as as an ignorant piece of text is kind of disheartening, and that this person got rewarded for that. Fully agree with that, Taj. I was, that was my nice version, by the way. <laughs> Someday we'll get to hear your really angry version. Um, no, it still has a ton of good insights. And um, yeah, couldn't agree with you more. It is sad. Hopefully the estate will get a clue at some point, but um, I'm doubtful about that. So who knows? So coming out of that rather depressing news, we do have some fun news we wanted to share as well. (laughs) There has been a little interesting development percolating, which is, you know, again, just a fun thing, but I think quite significant. So all of us know that Michael Jackson did work with Sega on different projects. I know one of those was Moonwalker. Of course, there was Sonic, Sonic 3. But there was also this project called um scramble training. It was a simulator uh, game. And, you know, really some really bad, I think like screenshots have existed about this in the past. But just recently, a gaming fan, his name is Ben Bisley or Bisley. um, He actually found this tape in a UK flea market and he, which he paid 300 pounds for. And he has in fact released, and we'll put a link in the show notes, released the footage. And it's the entire footage with Michael Jackson in the simulator and narrating this kind of simulation game. I, and so this is a big deal for, you know, a slice of the fan community and those I think in gaming as well. I think it's actually quite cool. And, you know, it shows the reach that that Michael had into different areas and the other types of projects he wanted to do. I also think this is like a perfect mashup of like Captain EO and Space Tours. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> 100% um, in like late era MJ. So I actually completely enjoy this. I think you should, you will have again the link in our show notes. You can watch the entire thing and it's super fun. I I just think this is a great fun thing. And thank you so much to Ben for sharing this with the fan community. It's awesome. You could have kept this in a vault somewhere and you didn't. And we really appreciate that. Any other comments, Jamin, would you like to? 
to say anything else on that. Oh, look, as a big video game fan and Michael Jackson fan, I think this is really cool. I mean, the footage is is fun and cute and I... Uh, I'm just fascinated by the world of Michael Jackson and video gaming in general, how engaged he was with video games. He was on the forefront with the Moonwalker game that came out in the the very late 80s. I played that um, at a friend's house. That was my first thing I ever had to do with Michael Jackson ever was going to my friend's house in like sixth grade or whatever. And he had a copy of Moonwalker, the video game, and I played it and I loved it. And you know, it's a little known fact that Michael Jackson was there as a guest of Sony at the original PlayStation's launch. There's photos of that. I don't think there's any video, but I just love the idea of of how Michael, how engaged Michael was with video games and how much he gave back to his fans that were also gamers through being involved in some of these projects. And I, I actually have a question for Taj on this. I'm having spent a lot of time at Neverland in your younger days. Do you have any recollections or stories of Michael Jackson, your uncle, the gamer? <laughs> you know, the, it's it's Uncle Michael, basically. He was very good at pinball. There's certain games that he was good at, uh, but then there's certain games that he was horrible at. And so, <laughs> um, and usually those were the more popular games, you know, the Street Fighters and all that stuff. Um, anything that was a little, that you had to mash buttons and all that stuff. But he loved video games and he loved arcade games in general. But that's also because the people that he was hanging around, like me and my brothers and and other people, they loved video games. And so he would, he would always be fascinated and ask us questions of why we like this system or which system's the best and why do we like this system. I mean, we were big Sega fans, me and my brothers, over Nintendo, actually, back in the day. And so we were really happy when he went with Sega as opposed to Nintendo, just because we just love Sega. But he used to tell us stories about, you know, he was going to be in this game or the, I remember with uh, Royal Rumble uh, on the Dreamcast, he, he let us see some preliminary stuff before it was even announced or released. And he said he had to do some stuff with it. So it was just exciting to see behind the scenes of his love for video games and arcades. And he loved watching people play it as well. Like um, that was another thing. So he knew he knew the importance of it. And so this uh, being leaked online, you know, decades later, it, it's it's a treat to see. It brought a lot of joy to me to see that because um, it did have that perfect mixture of Captain EO and Star Tours, and that which I know he loved Star Tours because I was there when they opened it with him. I think there's a parade or I don't know what it was, but we were there with him when, when it was opened. I just know how much he loved that. And yeah, uh, obviously Captain EO. So I think there's just, there's a synergy with Michael Jackson and video games that I personally, and I'm not going to say much, but I'm still advocating for and have some ideas for because Michael Jackson is synonymous with uh, video games and arcade games as well. Exciting. That's very cool. I love it. <laughs> Michael obviously had like a real affinity with, and apologies for the pronunciation, but in Australia we, we say Sega, not Sega. But um, I think when we interviewed one of the dancers on the Dangerous World Tour, uh, who was it? Hmm, I can't remember now. But he talked about Michael having a, an early release version of a game or one of the consoles on the tour bus. And uh, the dancers would just spend all the time playing Sonic or something on the tour bus. Yeah, he was he was he was loyal to Sega. I'll tell you that. He talked about Sega a lot, and 
and loved Sonic in that way. And so obviously he participated in what he could for Sonic in that way. And I think he had a great relationship with Sega in general. And I do appreciate how they treated him back then. Well, you know what? I'm going to bring a third pronunciation into this because in the UK we pronounced it Sega. <laughs> and, uh, m- my friend had a Sega Mega Drive and I loved Sonic uh, one and two, and when I found out that Michael was involved in Sonic three, it just blew my mind. Yeah, I was never allowed to own one when I was oh. a kid. My parents didn't like video games or anything like that, but they did relent, and I did have a, a Super Nintendo. I can't remember if I had Moonwalker on it or not, but even that didn't last long because my dad was in the Air Force and he got stationed down in the Falkland Islands for four months. Took the Nintendo with him and didn't bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I hear some resentment, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Charlie, I, I used to have Sonic on the Mega Drive and definitely in the UK when you plugged Sonic into the machine and it booted up, mm. it used to go, Sega. Yeah, exactly so right. I, oh, yeah. think, I think we're pronouncing it right. No one else is wrong. <laughs> pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> Why, how, do, how am I pronouncing it? What, what am I saying wrong? You're saying Sega. And you're saying Sega? Sega. Okay. That sounds the same to me. And then in Australia, we say Sega. Yeah. Sega is definitely wrong. Uh, well, that, yeah. Yeah, I won't, I won't go that far. Sega is a Well, I have a little Sega Mini, and supposedly you can hack it somehow to put Moonwalker on it, but I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> well, I, when I was a bit older... I got a PlayStation 2 was my first one that I bought myself. So I was well into my teens by then. And then a PlayStation 3 where I had, there was like a, a Mega Drive mix or something. And Sonic was on those as well. So that was great. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've actually played uh, Sonic with my uncle, like, you know, in, in general. Um, he, he wasn't that good, but we, <laughs> but neither was I, to be fair. Uh, Back then with with uh, Sonic, I wasn't as good in Sonic anyway. Um, but it was it's he he appreciated video games. He really when when there was a collaboration with Sega Sega or <laughs> or Sega, Sega um, he loved. It was a collaboration. It wasn't him just slapping his name on it. It was something where it, he was really heavily involved in it. That I do know because I, I did see a lot of behind the scenes. Yeah. And if listeners want to learn more about that, they can tune into our episode 100, I think, with Brad Buxer, where he goes into a lot of fine detail about the uh, the music for Sonic the Hedgehog 3. Mm. Yes. Well, Taj, I just have to thank you for, we've had so many interesting kind of unexpected side conversations in this episode. And thank you so, so much. And in this Sega chat was part of that too. I was expecting that to be a little tiny news item and (laughs) look at all the great stories you told us. So thank you so much. And with that in mind, we'd love to just actually focus on you a bit more and get a few more updates on What's going on in your life? And if you're able to kind of just give an official, you know, bird's eye view update on your own documentary project, um, we'd love to hear that. And then we have a few little questions for you, too, about what's Ooh, going on in your life nice. right now. Okay. Yeah. But maybe we can start with the documentary. Yeah. Uh, the, the docuseries has always been exciting for me. I uh, One of the things that was important and still is important to me is the 2023 release of it. Um, that is something that is a deadline that I don't want to miss. 
in that way, just knowing what's coming down the pipeline, but also what's coming beforehand. I think that's kind of the perfect spot for it in that way. Obviously, I don't want to rush anything, but I also feel comfortable with where I'm at right now in terms of making that uh, reality. Now, saying all of that, it's been really interesting watching other documentaries come out and docuseries come out and just seeing a how they perform but also kind of seeing what i would want to do different or similar to those as well but also how i want to take it to the next level of um in terms of just how my uncle would have wanted i do think that i mean i yap so much i don't know what i've given away or not given away i'm obviously 11 episodes is is a lot of episodes but at the same time that is something that I feel you can't tell Michael Jackson's story in less time to do it just and um, and to be fair about it in a way. I also, um, one of the things that we discussed, it, which was a new thing in, in a way that I am really excited about is, and I've always preached about this, about the people that knew him best and telling um, kind of through his eyes and his um, his words and stuff, but also through interviews of, of everyone that knew him and the close proximity of that. But I listened to someone early on that I, um, and I don't even know who it was, but it really crippled me in a way because I was so terrified of the family angle because I didn't want it to sound like a family puff piece. So I shied away from the family for the longest time because I just didn't want it to seem like, oh, this is the family's reaction to this, uh, to whatever this 2019, I'm not even going to mention the name, you know, thing that came out. And so I was reminded recently how important the family is and how I don't even know how I could have done this without family interviews and, and because they were the people that knew him best. They were the ones that went through the career with him. They were the ones that saw him succeed, saw him suffer, saw him upset, saw him happy. And so that was a new revelation to me that really kind of freed me from a lot of things. I was just so worried of being kind of lopsided. But at the same time, once the story became not about trying to be journalistic fair and like hey, both sides, but more of this is a story about Michael Jackson from the people that knew him best. And this is our story in, in that way. I think that was the freeing aspect of it because no one can tell his story better than his friends and his family. Fully, fully agree. And also just so respect that you are doing this as a series and you want to really tell the full story, which so many documentaries don't do. Just because fans will ask and hearing you talk about, you know, also talking to your own family members and things like that. Can you give us a sense of how many um, interviews you actually have like filmed at this point where you are in the in the process? I can, but I won't. <laughs> Okay. okay. Charles, fine, Charles knows why, but I can't, but I, and I won't only because I think they'll gauge whatever I say as that uh, staple of where I'm at and where I should be. I can tell you, I can tell you that I'm doing things backwards in a way because what we're doing is we're just, we're shaping the story from archival footage and other things aspect of it. And then the interviews kind of supplement the stories and kind of reinforce them. 
And um, I don't want to give too much of my strategy away, but that's kind of what I think will be different and more unique. Mm -hmm. The um, interviews are more explanation points and they're more of the little nuggets. But I think to truly get to know Michael Jackson and understand him, you have to see the footage and you have to see him either say something or um, the video footage of him doing something. I think that is the trick of this docu-series. And I just, uh, the why I'm so tight-lipped and secret is because I feel like when I, sometimes when I say certain things and whatever, other people pick up on it and then they kind of beat me to it in that way. And they'll do, they'll do something that I said I was going to do. And then fans are like, well, what's the difference between yours and this person's now? Because they just did what you said you were going to do. And I'm like, that's a good question. So I'm going to have to do something different now. And so mm-hmm. it's not, and look, I wish every project success because I don't care if it comes from my project or from someone else's project, the truth. I don't care if people become a fan or learn the truth about Michael Jackson through my project or any other project. But it makes it harder when I'm when people ask me, you know, to talk about the project, and then I do, and then other people incorporate it. Mm-hmm. What what I've said, and that is that is the hard thing because I am trying to be different in that way. And so, at some points, you don't become different anymore when when you when your ideas are being used. Very cool. Totally understand. Yeah, that's why I'm that's why I'm more secretive. I, look, I'm one of those people that I. I've, I can't tell you how many Christmas presents I've already given to my daughters because I can't wait. I'm like one of those people that can't, <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I'm like the worst person in terms of wrapping because I'm like, it comes from Amazon and then I'm already excited to give it to them. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to get another present now. And so this is the hardest thing for me is not sharing my excitement of, oh, we got this footage or I just saw this or I know where this is. I had a dream yesterday. No, two days ago, that I just remembered. And I can't even share that with anyone. I mean, Charles, I'll share that with you. But um, it's like, it opened up a world of possibilities in that way that I didn't even, it's almost like I had to reconfirm with my brothers of like, that's what we heard, right? In that way. And so there's a lot of excitement going on in that way. And I still feel like this is going to be a project that cements his legacy. But at the same time, I'm just more aware of the atmosphere now. And I wish I wish every project the best. I wish every project succeeds and does, you know, what Square One does or or better in, in that way, because we're all in it for the right reasons. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just wanted to ask about like the the um, logistics of things, you know, like there's obviously so many people around the place that you want to get on record and you want to speak to. Is there a lot of you and your team going out to them to film them in their locations? Or is it more of a thing where people are coming to you um, and you've got a, a space where you're filming? No, I, I didn't want to do a central location because what I really wanted to do Logistically, for me, the important thing was authenticity. So if I can capture people at their natural habitat, or even best, at a place where Michael visited or uh, stayed at, that is better to me than for them to come to a hotel room. And I think for authenticity reasons, you want to get people at their natural habitat and, and where they are and where they live. And so just for authenticity reasons, I would want to fly if it was someone um, it's just, yeah, you got to fly to them and it just, it's for them to feel more natural. And if Michael visited them, then even better. And they can show that around and, 
in, in general. I just think it's better to capture them at their own place or their own city or country in that way. So there's a lot of traveling. Another thing I want to ask Taj, and this is a bit of a, a delicate one or a sensitive one, I guess, but but obviously there are corners of the fan community, even sometimes people in positions of prominence, you know, different Michael Jackson content creators, the users at the Black Jackson Estate podcast come to mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I get a bit confused by the whole thing where they call themselves user one, user two. But anyway, one of the one of the people on that podcast, they have very publicly on their recent episodes called you some, you know, even some pretty full on things like, you know, being fraudulent and just taking mm -hmm. money from the fan community and not wanting, you know, this project may not even come, that kind of thing. And so I just, I guess I just wanted to hear from you directly. When you hear things like that online, what does that do to you? And and what is your response to that general vibe within the community? These quote unquote Jackson family fans who are out there saying that you are robbing or stealing money from Michael's fans. Um. I would say, and and it's a delicate issue because look, if they invested, then they have every right to be skeptical. But I would say to them for how they are being very vocal when this does come out and it does do what it needs to do, will they be equally as vocal about their apology? Um, that's all I would ask in that way. Or equally as vocal in their promotion of it. I don't even need an apology. I just, you know, would you go promote it now? You you rooted against it. Would you go promote it now in that way? And look, my whole career, even with 3T, people either voted against us, bet against us with, with me and my brothers. Our first reviews when we came out with our album were horrible because they didn't want us to succeed. And then we succeeded anyway. And then those Cs and Ds from you know, top magazines like Top of the Pops and and um, Smash Hits became A's and B's and B pluses and A minus. I don't think we got a B after our our success. It was like A A A A A. This album's an A. This single's an A, and everything like that. But the first ones welcoming us were not very pleasant because it's easy to count someone out and to think that it's not going to happen. And to the to their credit, it's been a long time. You know, but at the same time, it's there's been a pandemic and there's been certain things that have shifted in that way. And it's not like I disappeared for three years and like that. I've been on dozen, well, not even dozens, the dozens like under undercutting me, gazillions of podcasts, shows defending Michael, being interviewed, doing docu series for or um, being interviewed for other people's documentaries being involved in other people's documentaries, books, and other things, because I'm looking at the big picture. I'm looking at this is for Michael. And yes, my project is late, but I also know 90% of Michael Jackson's albums were late and people don't <laughs> even remember that anymore. And so that's the Jackson mindset. People, If it's great, people won't care if, if it was late. Yeah, it's just got to be right. And, and you know, Taj, we're 100% in your corner at the MJ cast and really believe in you and can't wait for it to come out. Thank for you. For those people out there who feel yeah. like your word is not enough, which is just ridiculous, it should be. But for those people listening, Charlie Thompson is, you know, here with us at the MJ cast, works with us. He's also on your team. Charlie's been at 
Hamid Moslehi's place and seen some of this footage that hopefully will end up in the documentary. Yes. He's helping you to to craft it and put it together. What more evidence do people need that this thing is in motion? Well, and Charlie's a secret, well, he's not a secret weapon because many, I mean, everyone knows that. But at the same time, what I learned is you always surround your people with the best in that way. And I learned that from my uncle. He said, that's the secret to secret ingredient is you surround yourself with the best people. So building the all-star team is the most important thing to me because then everything else comes becomes secondary. And that team hasn't been easy to to build because you have to vet people. You have to know people's hearts are in the right position. And you also have to know that they're capable of it in that way. And I can tell you that the, the team that we have now, even though some other people are um, new to this game, I'm very excited about our team in that way. And I know that from the quality that I want to deliver, which is probably going to exceed everyone else's opinion of what they think the quality is going to be, that I know our team can can pull that off and will pull that off. So I'm just, Charles is why I said secret weapon is just because he's one of the people that I just, I feel as long as he's on, on the team, there's going to be a certain, there's already a certain quality aspect to it in that way, because he keeps me honest. I'll keep him honest in that we're making the best product we can for the legacy. Oh, thank you, Taj. That's very sweet. And um, I'm looking forward to working with you. Yeah, We're so, so excited, Taj, to see it when it comes together and uh, just from the fan community, we appreciate all you're doing to uphold your uncle's legacy and uphold the truth. Yeah. And on that front, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're totally supportive of like other projects coming out. This is much more of like a fan kind of smaller homegrown project, but just curious about whether you've been kind of engaging with anything else. So for example, what I'm mentioning as the homegrown project is um, there is a podcast that's come out by a mother-daughter mm, duo called yep. Michael Jackson Case for Innocence. And we're just so curious, are you aware of this one? Do you have any thoughts on that or any similar stuff that's come out in the last few months? Um, I'm very aware of it, and uh, one of the people on my team made me aware of it, and I'm very excited. I'm not fully finished with it. I think I'm on episode three, so I'm still in the Chandler case, but it's very well done in terms of that. And I, I commend people for, for doing their own research and then also putting something together for other people to see and to take in that way. And I only get to kind of listen to it when I'm on, in my car. <laughs> and, mm. and that's how I do podcasts usually in general. So, mm. um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I always welcome uh, fans or in this case, a mother that the daughter was a fan and, you know, just for her own due diligence had to research and then found out the truth. And now has, with her daughter created this this podcast and so those kind of stories are very um not only important to me but they're inspiring to me in a way because i because even in today's age people are doing the research and it just proves that aspect and I, i'm i commend the daughter for being such a fan that the mom had to you know do her yes. own research <laughs> and, and i think that's going to be the case for a lot of this the younger generation which is why the docu series is so important because it's not for i hate to say this and and people are going to get upset it's not for us it's not for i mean 
us as fans, we know the truth and whatever. It's for the the general public that's loves his music, secretly dances to his music either at home or quietly dances to it at a club or whatever, but is scared to dance to it because of being shamed or whatever. And it's also for future generations who is very curious about Michael Jackson and who he is. And is there any truth to all this? And I want to get rid of all this nonsense before it becomes folklore. And it's like, oh, but there was this rumor. And it's like, he doesn't deserve that. And if you don't address that, then 50 years down the line, 100 years down the line, that'll be brought up and it doesn't need to be. And real quick, I don't, it doesn't bother me that if people talk about the trial and what he had to go through, that he was accused of this because that's part of his life and part of the journey. But it's the perception that, oh, we'll never know. And, you know, it's he said, he said, and that kind of stuff bothers me. I just want to add that I spoke to Cheryl a couple of days ago and she has some great plans for where she wants this podcast to go and to spread the the truth. It's got to be encouraging that there are more people out there that want to do these projects that reveal the truth rather than the tabloid sensationalism that a lot of media outlets seem to go with. I think you're really going to like the next few episodes. I'm completely up to date so far with Cheryl and June's podcast and the level of mm. detail that they go into is incredible. The amount of work that they've put into this project, I'm learning things yeah. all the time. I'm sure there are, you know, most of the, the the contents of the show are going to be things you already know, having experienced it firsthand. But it's definitely worth spreading things like this to get the truth out there. Oh yes, of course, and and, and that's what's exciting about all of this in terms of the, the future generations is that I do believe that. You know, Michael Jackson's one of the few people that the more you do the research, the more you realize he's innocent. And I think that's what has to come across. That's what we have to get people to do is just do the homework. And so with the docuseries or with other docuseries or other documentaries, it's they're all being effective because more and more people are learning the truth in that way. And I've seen it different comment sections and, and, and I can... I've said this before, but I can tell the difference between fans commenting and then the general public commenting on Michael. And it's not only shifted in that way, it's become, there's a lot of regular people saying, oh no, that was, those were all lies or this and that. And, And I think a lot of it has come down to, they've seen some of their own heroes be accused, falsely accused of certain things or, or realize that false accusations are not as uncommon as people think they are, especially if you're a celebrity or if you have a target on your back. And so that has been a revelation that two, three years ago, it was, oh, you have to believe everyone. Now it's like, okay, hold on one second. Let's take a pause. Let's look at the facts. Michael didn't get that luxury with with that 2019 piece of trash. And that was a nice version of... (laughs) Of what I was going to say in terms of how I should call it. But yeah, that's that's how I think about that. Well, Taj, we are here for you. We are just so excited to continue to hear about developments. And thank you for sharing as much as you, you did about your process, because I know you didn't really want to talk about well, it. And yeah. uh, we just appreciate the, what you did share. So thank you. 
you know, I, I realize I'm becoming a broken record too, because I'm like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And I understand the skepticism. So I'm not, that's why I'm not going hard on anyone because I understand it. But I also, I want those same people that were rooting against me to, you know, um, to be just as vocal when it does come out and does do what I promised and said it would do. Then it's like, okay, where are you now? in that way. And, and some of them will be like, Hey, I, I was wrong. And, and I'll appreciate that. And I'll be no problem. Okay. Well, thank you again, Taj, for all those updates. Amazing. We are cheering you on. We can't wait to hear more. And to move towards closing out our big Christmas extravaganza, we wanted to reflect just a little bit on the year that was. Now, it was a pretty crazy year. I will say that 75% of our team had little tiny people running around our houses, and it made things (laughs) a little wild and a little hard to sometimes get those episodes done. But we still put together what I feel is an amazing, amazing season. We had a few less of the regular fan chat episodes, but we have some incredible interviews. I mean, we had Brett Barnes, we had Marcus Cabota about Sonic Fantasy. We had our John Barnes roundtable where we had Matt Forger, Brad Buxer, Brad Sunberg talking about the memory of the amazing John Barnes. We had Violet Booker. Um, it's been incredible. We had our Q&A with both Charlies. Um, so yeah, just I would love to hear from you guys about some favorite moments from this year. Um, any, you know, memories, any favorite episodes. Uh, love to hear what your thoughts thoughts. Maybe, Jamin, would you like to start? Sure. I mean, I feel like this is our strongest season ever. I'm more proud of season eight, I think, than any other season because with season eight, we were able to put out a great run of episodes amidst some chaos that was going on at our house. I mean, uh, I suppose when in 2019, that was pretty chaotic as well. I got to say that, but but this this year in particular has just been a game changer with all the kids we've had come into the MJ cast families and um, trying to manage it. And that's never been more apparent than right now, actually, with us trying to get out these episodes in the next week. But um, yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting season. Like the start, it, we got off to a little bit of a rocky start, I'll say, because we put out our Janet Jackson documentary roundtable, and Charlie Thompson, you went full Charlie thompson mode in in that (laughs) episode (laughs) when speaking about the doco (laughs) and that caused us uh, a little bit of yeah interesting uh (laughs) interaction on twitter but you know apart from that little the start of the season since then it just went from strength to strength to strength we got to celebrate so many things this this season we did a great round table episode where we celebrated the you know, finally the, the Casio tracks from the Michael album are gone. Um, a year ago, we were probably talking with you, Taj, about your thoughts on whether that would even happen in the future. And yeah, just a few months later, it did happen. So that was a huge, yeah, thank goodness. A huge moment for celebration. We got to interview some people that were extremely close to Michael, whether it be his longtime chief of security at Neverland, Violet Gaetan Booker, you know, Brett Barnes, it was, we, we just, yeah, it's been an amazing season and I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of all of, all of you guys and us being able to work together as a team to accomplish this. So thank you. And thank you, Jamin, for always being our absolutely fearless leader who makes it all happen. <laughs> we would not exist without you and just, we so appreciate you. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Thanks for putting up for my random 
phone calls at all hours, <laughs> panicking. What do I do here? <laughs> Carter, did you want to chime in about your favorite moments? Yeah, I, it's well, first things first, I want to say once again, echo what I said last year, which is thank you for having me on board. It's been an honor and a privilege to be able to edit some of these episodes, be on some of the calls, and for you all to entrust me with presenting a couple of episodes one of which at the time of recording has not yet been published, but our Thriller 40 episode to be given the responsibility of hosting an episode of my favorite album, the world's biggest selling album, was just, I can't explain to you the level of gratitude that I have for allowing me to do that. In terms of highlights from the season, the Janet Jackson documentary was, it was great to be on a show with the girls from the Janet episode. I learned some things about Janet that I didn't know before, have some monumental things, like you said, the John Barnes Roundtable, the removal of the Casio tracks, that discussion with Damien, that's a pretty monumental event in the posthumous history of Michael Jackson. Obviously, to host the British Q&A with Charlie and Summer Habib was just an absolute pleasure. But for me, the highlight of the season has to be the Brett Barnes episode, purely because this is a guy who has never wavered from his story, never wavered from the, the truth has been a staunch defender of Michael's for many years, has only spoken to the media previously once in 1993, and to trust the MJ cast to tell his story and to get that out there, I think is is huge testament, not just to Brett, but also you know to Jamin and yourself and Charlie to be able to secure that interview and to get that story out there. The only disappointment with that is that it didn't gain more traction in the media, but then given their narrative, that's not really too much of a surprise. And um, Brett, if you're listening to this, I just want to say a huge thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And yeah. we we hope to expand on that, actually, and hear more of your experiences with Michael. So please don't hesitate to get in touch with us if you'd like to come on again in future. Um, and from a personal point of view, I've also had the opportunity to meet some people in the Michael community that I've spoken to many times over the internet. I met Q recently a few weeks ago in Sydney, I met Damien Shields, as I mentioned earlier. But not only that, I got to cuddle Charlie Thompson in London. All right. <laughs> hey, hey. A highlight. <laughs> we had a, a lovely <laughs> evening out. We, So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Taj, but uh, we took our baby daughter over to the UK to surprise my parents. We didn't tell them that we were coming. Oh, that's awesome. We, we filmed that, and I put that on my YouTube channel. And part of that trip that we were over there, we had a few days in London, and we organized to have a, a wonderful dinner with Charlie in uh, my wife took our daughter back to the hotel when when she was too tired and Charlie and I just walked the streets of London just talking, not necessarily about Michael Jackson, just getting to know each other. Uh, so, Charlie, thank you for making the journey into London to come and see us. It was uh, wonderful. Oh, it was a privilege. It was great to see you. And um, hopefully it won't be too long before we can see each other again. Havenhurst 2023. Oh. You can fly yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Yeah, well, that's a, a personal milestone, nothing to do with Michael Jackson, but I obtained a pilot's license this year. So oh, wow. on, on top of all of that's been going on with the MJ cast and, and work, to have that in the background as well is just uh, amazing. Taj, hopefully I'll take you flying one day. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that didn't sound – you didn't sound convinced, Taj. Uh. <laughs> I hate I hate flying, so that's why I was like, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. It's not just uh, the, the thought of flying that terrifies some people. It's the thought of flying with me, so you're not alone in that trepidation. Oh. Don't worry. Oh. I was taking you out of the equation. I was actually like. <laughs> what if we do wing walking? Me and Taj, one on each wing. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Charlie in the pilot seat. Now, we'd have to film that episode. This has gone off in an interesting direction. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, anything else, Carter, that you wanted to add? <laughs> uh, no, other than just to say, Taj, pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, I wish you all the best with your documentary and all the interviews that you're doing. And if you do make it over here to Australia, please do get in touch, whether it's here in Sydney, up in Brisbane to see Jamin or or Melbourne or wherever it is you're heading to, just let us know. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, definitely will. Um, and Charlie, did you want to comment on any of your favourite moments from this year? Well, I'll be raking over the same ground but clearly brett was a huge milestone and something that i didn't really think would ever happen Mm -hmm. and he was incredibly candid and the fact that he said he placed no limits on us about what we could ask was um brilliant Mm -hmm. and i i can't think of anything important that i should have put to him that i didn't yeah i think that was that was pretty major to bag the Brett interview. I think it's just, just the, this kind of the MJ cast extended family. It was nice to have Christina back on for an episode for the Violet episode. It's great to have Sam Habib on for the Q and a Damien for the Casio tracks remove removal. I think Q came back for a couple of episodes. James Allay. It's always good to have him on the show. Did Sean come on this season? Thriller 40. Yeah. Oh, I've not heard it yet. Okay, well, it's always good to have Sean Shackleford on as well. I love hearing all those guys. They've always got something great to contribute. Yeah. And um, I look forward to hearing from them. And then the other thing I think that was a huge success was the John Barnes Roundtable. I just thought that whole episode was absolutely fascinating. Really, really brilliant. And, of course, it led to the Matt Forger special, which is yet to be released at time of recording this episode. Mm -hmm. But I was involved in the Matt Forger episodes and that was a privilege as well well it was meant to only be about two to three hours and we how long did we speak to him for in total i would say it was got to have been over seven hours wow. yeah but, you know is. i mean <laughs> the, the listeners won't hear all of it but you know when you consider the pre the pre and post interview chatting it might even be eight maybe eight hours and let's not not forget as well that that's a milestone episode. 150 episodes for the MJ cast is something that particularly Jamin and Elise and you as well, Charlie, should be congratulated on having been involved pretty much from the start. And well, I was a I was a passenger in the beginning. It was it was Jamin and Q, and TJ, not Taj's TJ, but the other TJ, yeah, yeah. who we miss. Mm-hmm. And was Damien was Damien a co-founder? Yep, there was four of us: me, TJ, Q, and Damien, and. It sort of only launched, it just launched with Q&I, but for months behind the scenes, it was Damien and TJ doing a lot of heavy lift and getting it up and running. And yeah, rest in peace, TJ. It was his birthday yeah. yesterday. So. God bless TJ. I loved him. Yeah. Um, also, another highlight for me is the fact that Taj, your uncle Jackie, uh, submitted the little audio intro snippet for episode 150. Uh, wishing us oh wow yeah wishing us well and that was so special to hear that how cool yeah yeah (laughs) when that came through it was going to be a long shot because we reached out to him to see if he'd be keen and um through through friend of the show yannicka who obviously is just Mm -hmm. an amazing person it was a long shot but it came back he replied with it within i think a few hours of us asking it was just like wow (laughs) wow yeah (laughs) That's great. I love that though. He is such a nice guy. Jackie is just, um, when I met your uncles, when I saw the Jacksons perform at the Gold Coast a few years ago and I met them in like a hallway of the venue where they had performed, Jackie, 
I mean, all of them were so special to talk to. But when I spoke to Jackie, he just sort of like locked onto me with 100% attention and just <laughs> eye contact. And he was just like, he just very, very humbly and quietly just said, thank you so much for everything you guys do at the MJ cast. And I was like, wow, mm. that just means the world. <laughs> yeah. Never know who's listening. Never know. <laughs> well, Jackie, Jackie, Marlon, Tito, Jermaine, if you are listening, Randy, and you want to come on, please get in touch. Let's go. We're ready. Latoya, Latoya. I'll never forget the time, Taj, you, you, you asked me, you DM'd me and said, give me a call. And then when we were on the phone, you said, how would you like to interview a member of the Jackson 5? Mm. When you first set up the interview with your, with your dad, I was like, whoa. I gotta pinch myself. Is this really <laughs> happening? <laughs> yeah, that seems like so long ago, but yeah, that was exciting. Yeah, <laughs> that was episode fifty, right? Episode fifty for Tito time. Yep. Yes, yep. <laughs> we love Tito time. <laughs> so, so yeah, I so agree with you guys that Brett Barnes phenomenal. I think it will go down in history as one of our most important episodes for me personally. Also, the that John Barnes tribute roundtable. I do want to give a shout out to Brad Sundberg. He really did help us put that together and it's led to so many other things. So thank you, Brad. We really appreciated your help there. John Barnes will always have a very, very dear place in my heart. And mm. I that episode is incredible. The stories, the memories, the energy between the guys talking about him is I, I will never forget it. It's one I'll listen to many times. And um, and then just the Violet episode, I the Violet Gaten Booker, huge thank you there to Velo Christina, who has, I have to say, just you know, time and time again, since she's become more or less a regular guest in the show, she has proven herself to be just such a sophisticated, well-spoken well, you know, educated fan. And Christina, you make a difference on every episode you're on. And I really thank you for that. And it was so much fun to talk to to Violet with, with Christina. And that one too, I have gotten more comments from people on the Violet episode just about how much they appreciated her insights and stories. So Violet, huge thank you to you. And that was also um, one of my favorites. But it's been, you know, this has been a mighty, mighty season. It's mm -hmm. we've done incredible stuff. I, I felt like looking back, I was like, oh, man, we kind of maybe had a little bit of a slower season, but it really wasn't. It was major episodes. And I'm just so proud of all of them. And uh, yeah, so it's been a great year. And also, I mean, hey, look, Season eight. That's crazy. Like, oh God. we're going to be at years. 10 seasons before we know it. 10 years of the MJ <laughs> cast before we blink our eyes. Right. And on that note, Jamin, would you like to talk about the season ahead, season nine, and any plans we have percolating? Uh, Well, not. Yeah, we don't have a whole lot of plans, really, I guess. I mean, we just want to keep doing what we're doing. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're exactly. at the stage now of the MJ cast where every once in a while, you know, people come to us wanting to be interviewed whether it be collaborators mm -hmm. and sometimes people approach us and say, hey, can I come on the show? Which is just crazy when that happens. It's like, what? Um, normally in the early days it was us chasing a lot of people. But So we're, we're hoping to lock in more interviews with Jackson family members, with uh, people who knew and worked with Michael professionally. We want to put more roundtable episodes out discussing milestone moments or albums or projects that Michael did. There's just so many things we still want to do. Carter, you and I were just talking the other day on the phone about how we've tended to focus a lot on Michael's later years recording, you know, from yeah. the the 90s onwards or the 80s onwards, mainly because all of those people that worked with Michael are still so, you know, young and ready to talk in a lot of cases. But, you know, there's a whole 
new world we need to delve into as the MJ cast. We need to go back to the 70s and start digging into the Jacksons and the Jackson 5 and talking to collaborators who worked with the the brothers in the studio in, in that era. So there's still so much we have to do at the MJ cast. And it feels like even though we're seven years in or whatever it is, sorry, eight years in, that in a lot of ways we're just getting started because there's still so many stories to uncover. So I'm excited mm-hmm. for next year and we're going to work really hard to make it as good or better than any other season we've done yet. Cool. So an annual feature and one of my favorites we have at the MJ cast is our blooper reel. So those are our little mistakes we've captured throughout the year. They always give me a chuckle, I know. So let's go ahead and launch into that right now. Hello and welcome. Uh, There's a car going past. (laughs) Bloopers. (laughs) Um, Matt, what we what we like to do at the MJ cast is really go back in time. Uh, so, sorry, my uh, five-year-old just came into the room. One second. You've got a fever. Oh, that's no good. Maybe go talk to Mama. Can you shut the door? Okay, that sounded like the door from Thriller, but okay. She went to work as an investigator for Robert Sanger. Why can't I say that? <laughs> sorry. Robert Sanger does not sit in my in my mouth well. This is a, a quick but an important one. Uh, the blah, 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 blah. Let me say that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna just because it's a deluxe, so it's got an extra disc, disc so it's extra large. Okay, and uh, I'm just uh, gonna give a bit of lead time again. This is gonna be a fun edit, Carter. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, Marcos, <laughs> on your website, uh, we we know. Sorry, I'll restart that again. Hello. No, I think is that is that now? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that was a huge adventure. Um. Um. One day, I just got an email from the state and, and... Oh, yeah, he's dropped out completely. Such a cliffhanger, too. One day, I got an email from the estate <laughs> and they said... Oh. <laughs> I, was t- I was just about to say... John Branker's outside ripping his phone cord out. <laughs> Here we go. Yay, we're recording. Hooray! <laughs> Now let's all pray for no tech issues (laughs) in one of those mornings, but it's good. I'm thrilled. We're very happy. Um, Okay. So moving along, we do have a couple of big anniversaries this year, and this is going to transition us into our main discussion topic for this episode. First of all, we do have, what is going on? Are you peeing, Carter? No, I'm not. Okay. Are you pouring more tea? What's going on? FYI, we're at about two hours and eight minutes so far. Yeah, we're okay. going to... Yeah, we're wrapping up. We're going to wrap This up. is the farewells because I am starving for lunch. I need to pee so bad. I need to, I'm need. i going to fill my toilet with urine. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Okay, you guys, let's, let's wrap up. Jamin, stick that in the outtakes. <laughs> do you need us to clap or not? Oh, if you want, we can do it for a bit of fun. Three, two, one... <laughs> That was a terrible clap. That was. <laughs> I think there's That's... only ever been one good clap ever. That's terrible. <laughs> are we leaving that clap? Or are we doing another one? <laughs> that's a bunch of that's a bunch of white people at a concert getting offbeat <laughs> within like three or four claps. That is so true. <laughs> okay. Oh, when they do it in when they do it in ballads, it's the worst. Like, why are you even clapping in a ballad? <laughs> you you must be putting the singer off. Like they're trying to sing their song and you're clapping like offbeat. What's going on? <laughs> Next question has come in anonymously from Damien Shields uh, for additional funding. So the crowdfunding 
Um, Sorry, you've got a dog one. going off in the background there. I know. There's nothing I can do about that. I've not got a gun. Um, um. <laughs> it's, it's, that is not my dog. It's somewhere down the street. We'll just have to live with it. No, it's fucked off now. I am your toy. I am your boy. Paul, you got an audio problem there. Yeah, oh, all that came out very... You've got yeah, some static. Okay. St- static? Oh, dear. You sound like a bumblebee. Bumblebee. It's <laughs> legitimately what he sounds like. <laughs> Damien Shield is equal to Casio. The Casio tracks. And, like, there's... <laughs> You call, are you the, calling me fake? <laughs> you, no, like you are. Like if you are the resource, DamienShields.com. Just looking it up on IMBD now. And then I played it, and then a couple places, the girl stumble, stumbles and stutters. I said I could take that out. Marcos, I wish I was on the Canary Islands. <laughs> Cardi, you're going to need a month to edit this thing. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> Intro me again, and I'll just do it naturally in response to you. So. <laughs> all right, all right. Charlie Carter's hating this. He's hating it. All right. Brett, while he's writing that out, what Jamie and you and I usually do is we try and take a funny quote and use it as a title for the show. Like, for example, with Sean Shackelford, he was talking about how he went to a concert, uh, a Rick James concert, and he said his father was ready to go. So that ended up being the title. <laughs> I would love it if we did it with this episode. And the title I would choose is I have never been in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funniest thing I've heard this week. <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe I had to actually say that, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It just goes to show you what some people say. Like, just make up crazy, crazy. Who put someone in a suitcase? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <sighs> All the behind-the-scenes stuff. <laughs> Great. Well, do we want to go into any other... Thank yous. I got a few little thank yous I want to give um, before we share socials and, and sign off for the year. But um, I just want to acknowledge everyone who's made the MJ cast possible over the years. You know, you guys, especially my fellow teammates, um, Elise, Carter, Charlie. Um, you know, I want to just acknowledge Q as well, who even though isn't a day-to-day member of the team right now, uh, we still chat all the time about what's going on at the MJ cast and where we can go in the future. And yeah, I just really appreciate Q so much. I want to acknowledge James LA. He is a team member of the MJ cast. He handles all of our back end stuff uh, to do with our website. Uh, he is amazing and, and so technically adept at everything he does and keeps the show going. I want to give a special, like an extra special thank you to Jason Garcia, who uh, over at MJ Radio does a great job there. But just without fail, anytime things get super duper complicated on the editing end at the MJ cast and we get real stuck with getting shows out, whether it be for family reasons or whatever, Jason is always there. He he knows when things are going on. He texts and says, hey, can I step in? And he has done that in the last week and Jason's edited one of our episodes uh, for this final end of season run so thank you from the bottom of our hearts Jason for stepping in and helping out Uh, he has saved our bacon on a number of occasions 
uh, frequent guests, Sean Shackelford, Damien Shields, Velo Christina. Love it when you guys are on. Can't wait to have you guys back for season nine. Also to Taj and really the entire Jackson family, uh, this show wouldn't be possible without the incredible musical and artistic legacy of the Jackson family. And thank you for embracing the MJ cast and coming on and we just love that. We love that. Uh, Michael Jackson collaborators from the studio, whether it be dancers, choreographers, uh, musicians, producers, stylists, just anyone who worked with Michael over the years and has has a, a story to share. We know that even though Michael was a genius of astronomic proportions in his own right, his genius was added to by all of these other geniuses in their field who he attracted to help build on his own artistic statement. So we love to talk to those people. I also want to thank people who get random calls and texts from me. You guys know who you are. People like John Cameron, who I sometimes, <laughs> if a special episode's coming up or a guest and I want to know what to ask them, I go to people and I ask, you know, what should I ask this person? So thank you very much to those people as well. And lastly, I want to give two last thank yous. One to our listeners, because this show wouldn't be possible without all of the people who engage with the MJ cast, all the thousands of people around the world, you know, that, that listen to our show in all corners of the world, the emails we get, the messages we get. We love them all. Thank you so much. And our deepest thanks to actually our partners. So <laughs> this show does take a lot of time to put out in our personal lives. We all have full-time jobs. Uh, we all have families. But we do it, you know, after hours really. And the people that allow that to happen um, so graciously are our partners and our family members. So I want to I want to say thank you to my wife Lee. I want to say thank you to Carter's wife Jess. I want to say thank you to Elisa's husband Jared, to Q's partner as well. I want to say thank you so much for allowing space and time for this show to happen because sometimes it does encroach on family time, but we believe that we're doing something amazing for Michael, for the Jackson family, and for all of uh, the fans of Jacksons. So thank you very much. Very last, we're probably harder to reach than ever before. i uh, got to be honest with that. In terms of emails, DMs, getting to us is probably pretty hard in terms of hearing back from us. Uh, so listeners, if you're emailing us and not getting a reply, we just want to say we read everything that comes through and we want to reply to everything that comes through. But sometimes it just gets a little bit hard with all the commitments we have with our family and, and work. So we're going to work harder at doing that um, in 2023. But thank you for all the communication that comes in. There are my thank yous. Thank you for all those beautiful thank yous, Jamin. They were so well said. And and I just, you know, really agree with you on all that and send out also my own huge thank yous to everyone you mentioned, everyone who makes the MJ cast possible. This is an amazing project. And um, I'm so honored to be a part yeah. of it. Mm hmm. I just want to close out here. And before we give our socials and everything, I want to mention one small but significant development with the MJ cast. As listeners know, our show has always been free. It does cost us money to run and those costs keep increasing. And while we have no plans to make money off the show, we would at least like to be able to cover our expenses. In the past, we've explored options such as running ads or doing sponsorships. For personal reasons, we have decided not to do a program like Patreon just because it's not quite the right match for us. But our new development is that we do now have a donation page on our website. It's at themjcast.com slash support. If you go to that link, it will take you to our PayPal page where you can donate whatever amount you want. 
So if you happen to have really enjoyed one of our episodes and you have the means and are inclined, consider donating the cost of even, say, just a cup of coffee. These donations go directly to helping us cover the expenses of hosting our website, purchasing recording equipment, and many other things that help keep our show running. Again, we don't make any profit off of this. It's simply to help keep our costs down a bit so that we can focus on making a great show for you. So if you have the means, you'll find that link at the mjcast.com slash support. And thanks in advance to anyone who donates. We hugely appreciate it. And with that in mind, otherwise, beyond our donation page, you can, of course, continue to find us everywhere around social media and the internet. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at the MJCast. We're also, of course, at the MJCast.com. As Jamin said, we try hard to reply to everything we can. If we ever take a little while, feel free to ping us and we'll get back to you. <laughs> we always appreciate every comment. We appreciate every review. Subscribe to the show on any podcast app of your choice, be it Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. And um, yeah, keep listening. We will keep putting out great content and can't wait for 2023. And thank you again, Taj, for joining us. Um, Taj, do you want to let people know where they can find you? Um. I think it's Taj Jackson three on Twitter. <laughs> I don't even know for sure. I think it's Taj Jackson three on Twitter and Taj Jackson on Instagram. Yeah, and I would say Twitter is your main platform, really, right? Yeah, and then on TikTok, which I haven't updated, um, I think it's Taj Jackson. I'm not sure. We're gonna wait for more TikToks from you. <laughs> yeah, well, if I get the numbers up, I'll be inspired. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Taj, just because I know you're so modest and you don't like to to say it so much, but also uh, listeners, if you just head over to GoFundMe.com and you can search for Rewriting History, which is the name of Taj's upcoming docuseries, which is going to be all about the true history of Michael Jackson, you can still donate money to that to make it an even better product when it does come out. We're 100% believers, Taj, in your project. We can't wait for it to come. And we hope all fans continue to rally around it Mm. and support it. So head over to GoFundMe to make it a reality. Thank you. Carter, where can people find you? Okay. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Charlie W. Carter. So it's at Charlie W. Carter. I'm also on Instagram as at Alpha Charlie Photos. And if you are interested in seeing my video of my flight over Neverland, And when we did surprise our parents earlier this year, I'm Alpha Charlie on YouTube as well. And I also want to just add to the thank yous, if I might. Thank you to Elise, Jamin, and Charlie once again for having me on the team. Taj for joining us today. And I was hoping to say this before she got home, but my wife and daughter have just arrived back home. Just want to say thank you very much. I love you very much. Thank you for allowing me to do what I do on this podcast. That was so sweet. (laughs) I loved it. And Charlie Thompson, <laughs> where can people find you on the internet? I don't have any children to thank. It's um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter at C.E. Thompson. There's no P in Thompson. And I, I'm actually now on Instagram at the insistence of Constantinos, <laughs> who builds the, uh, the Havenhurst maze. So... I just had to check what my username is. So it's C.E. Thompson, Journo, J-O-U-R-N-O. I I mean, I'm not very interesting on either of them, but I'm there if you want to follow me. 
Did you get stuck in the maze and he wouldn't let you out until you agreed to join Instagram? <laughs> no, no, he just kept pestering me. He did he did manhandle me into that maze, though, because I, I don't enjoy those mazes. I mean, I don't know if they're supposed to be enjoyable, but I definitely don't find them enjoyable. I had to leave um, Universal Studios' Hall- Halloween horror thingamajig after a couple of hours because I found it too horrible. But um, – <laughs> I mean, the maze, you know, clearly it was very, very good. It did what it was supposed to do, which was, which is just um, too, too scary. But, but anyway, Constantinos is, uh, is brilliant. So shout out to Constantinos and Rashid while I think of it as well. Anyway, thanks guys. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for, I'm about to lose my voice completely, but I love you all. I know, poor, poor Charlie. You have to go drink some tea and go to bed. It's also extremely late your time. And as for me, I am, uh, or Jamin, I don't think you gave yours yet. I apologize. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. If people want to find me, it's just at Jamin Bull, J-A-M-O-N-B-U-L-L on Instagram and Twitter. I like to share Michael Jackson opinions and thoughts and stuff on there as well. I'm a little bit freer with my thoughts on my personal accounts than I am on uh, the official MJ cast account, just because I don't want to bore our listeners with my <laughs> rants. But um, yeah, if you fo- want to follow me, that would be great. And I am at Elise Capron on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I really have been kind of MIA from Twitter most of this year, except for occasional stuff on the MJ cast page because parenthood has taken over my life, but I'll be back there eventually. (laughs) And thanks to everybody for your understanding and patience. And I think that otherwise, I think that's pretty much a wrap. This was so much fun. And we just want to wish everybody a really, really happy Christmas and New Year and whatever other holidays you celebrate, Hanukkah, um, Kwanzaa. And we are looking forward to the next year ahead. We will keep you guys posted on our release schedule. And just thank you again for your support. We look forward to future engagement and I get to do my little sign off, which is stay bad. (laughs) (laughs) Keep Michael. Carter, do you have? Did you have a sign off? No, I don't. I don't. I don't have one. Well, you have to come up with one. Work on one. Come up with one that's Uh, like a crossover between Michael Jackson and aviation. Did he say anything (laughs) in Moonwalker about like flying? Or I don't know. I can tell a terrible dad joke on the topic. (laughs) Michael Jackson would have made a terrible pilot because he could never land. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't say that every episode. (laughs) No, 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 you can't. I'll have to come up with one, but I don't have one. (laughs) Uh, I think I'd just say thank you and Happy New Year. Happy Christmas and Happy New Year.
Charlie, do you do you have a sign off you'd like to do? This is the first I'm hearing of it, and um, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs>